Welcome back, Screamers, to another episode of Introspection and Existential Crises. <laughs> we, uh, As the world comes crumbling down, the two stalwarts are here. The Wilhelm boys are here to keep you, keep you <laughs> the, straight. The, the Wilhelm boys are here to tell you why you should have an existential crisis as well. So to, to, right. you can do it at home. Yeah. <laughs> While you're listening to this podcast, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and to that end, we have a real hodgepodge of films today. I, I was going to say the exact same thing, using the exact same words. This is a fucking <laughs> menagerie of, uh, excuse me, of different films of, yeah, and it's, it's weird too, because I was, when I was coming up here, I was just like, man, I'm always worried whether or not, and it's whether we can pontificate on some bullshit for two hours is never really the issue, but <laughs> like, <laughs> we are full of enough bullshit. But this will be a challenge. We'll see how it goes. You think so? No, no, no. I'm a challenge. I, uh-huh. It's just so widely differing films that yeah. it's... Uh, so the first one we're going to talk about, unless you want to change the, the schedule that we haven't talked about at all. <laughs> no, no, no. Please. Go um, so we're going to talk about Akira Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress, which was screened at the, la- the latest meeting of the Fort Worth Film Club. And then we'll shift gears and look at a couple new films, Master Gardener, Paul Schrader's latest, and Mark Jenkins' Innisman. Um, but but look, before we even get into the the film discussion, I believe that you made a new friend. I a, did. A I famous did. friend. <laughs> I made three. Well, I made two, and one didn't look up because he was uh, had a busy day. <laughs> um, which I've actually met Jason Mewes before. Um, he did this movie called Nether Beast Incorporated. Uh, with Steve Burns from Blues Clues. Okay. Uh-huh. This is really small, never released independent film that uh, is out there somewhere in the ether. And it's um office place kind of, uh, if I remember correctly, some sort of like office place comedy slash thriller class, you know, whatever. It was fine. It was an, I saw it at the Dallas, independent film, uh, Dallas International Film Festival way back in the day. And I happened to come across Jason Mewes and his lady friend at the time. Uh, in the hallway, and I said, I said, hey, I really liked your film. And he said, cool. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> awesome. But uh, no, I met um, over, so over the weekend, uh, Dallas had a fan expo, you know, a Comic-Con, if you will. I had missed, um, I had missed Texas Frightmare because I was out of town. I actually saw and got to sit in on a Q&A for John Carpenter, which was interesting and always kind of rare because he doesn't quite do those much anymore. Uh, so it's fun to see him in person and then watch They Live on the big screen. But um, I met... Did you run out of bubblegum? <laughs> I did. I did. And all I did was kick ass from there. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> ever, ever since. Uh, so I met Jason Lee and I met... So the Dallas Fan Expo had most of... It had a pretty big swath of clerks people. And I narrowed it down because I had a Mallrats poster that I wanted to get signed. And... Um, so I met, I stood in line for Jason Lee and I stood in line to see a kind of a dual signature, which was best bang for your buck kind of thing um, <laughs> for Kevin Smith and, and for Jason Mewes. And who um, do you think was like latching on to whom? <laughs> <laughs> you make a good point. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I can say, hey, I, let me, let me sit here with you. <laughs> I can honestly say, I don't think either one of them needs the money, but I yeah. think if someone was going to run out, I would, I would hedge my, and I would say Jason is probably the odds on favorite. Um, just, <laughs> just in general. Um, but what if, I mean, Kevin Smith does like collectibles, doesn't he? He does. So that yeah. can be a pretty expensive hobby. But that's true. A good point. <laughs> I think he mostly sells these days. So uh, um, he, he, he's, he's 
offloading those Beanie Babies and Funkos. <laughs> right. The, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the Jason Lee part was pretty funny. Um, just because I, um, the person, a couple people in front of me, um, and you know, and you know how these things go. You just go up and you. No, I don't go to them. I'm kidding. I'm joking. My kids are into it. Um, it's okay. Sh- Own it. Shamik Moore was there. Yeah, uh, yeah, And yeah. so, um, and I didn't actually get to meet him. His line was, it, of course, it happened to come on, you know, the detail of Across the Spider-Verse coming out. And so his line was huge. I wonder I, if there were any, like, dope fans there. I see, that's what I wanted to right? go and talk to him about. I, I would have really loved to spend, like, spent time talking to him about dope and then asking about Oreo and, like, because the, the, that's, like, my, that, that would be the one thing that I'd want to kind of spend time with him on. But, um... Uh, and he looked really cool. Like he just had a cool vibe to him. But, he does. Yeah. And some uh, Tate got to meet him, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't hit that line. Um, so I'm standing in line for Jason Lee, and um, he a couple of people ahead of him. Was, they were talking about my name was Earl, and I just heard the, overheard the last part of the conversation. And um, it was, you know, basically they were saying, you know, they ended us on a cliffhanger, blah blah blah. But Greg, um, I forget the last, the, it, it, he, it, the, the showrunner, and he was like, they're trying to get something going, like some sort mm-hmm. of like, you know, either Kickstarter or some sort of like closure movie type thing going. So, um, and we'll see if it ever comes about. So I, when I walked up to him, I said, hey, if you ever do get that off the ground, like, how are you going to explain how Randy got all jacked? <laughs> and in like, and it was, and then like Jason smiled and like laughed a little bit. And he was like, oh, you know what? That's a good point. It's like, I bet Greg will come up with something really good. And then he just went right into Earl mode. Like the voiceover, and it was like, looks like Randy found a free membership card on the ground. It's like, and he got really good at it too. And it was just so cool, like hearing Jason Lee, like in the Earl voice, just like kind of dive right into that. I was, and we both laughed a little bit and, you know, had a moment. Did he offer you any chocolate covered pretzels? (laughs) He did not. He did not. Uh, uh, We didn't really talk too much about mall rats. And I, you know, I heard people in front of, in front of him too. That was one of the girls that was uh, in front of me, the specific one right in front of me was talking about mall rats and how he was like, that was my favorite because that was my first film set and kind of thing. So I stood in line for a good, this was ridiculous. It's, it, it was a really long time for Kevin Smith and, and Jason Mewes. And then they, they were busy the entire day. But I walked in and, um, you know, I showed uh, Kevin my poster. And he was like, oh, this is really cool. I've never seen this one before, and I, which is kind of rare. Mm-hmm. And, I was, and, like, I talked to him a minute, and it was just, you know, just kind of general small talk. And I just said, it was really nice to meet you. And he said, it really was you know, it's nice to meet you, too. And we shook hands. I was just like, I was taken aback by like how genuine he is. I don't even think it's a seams. I don't even want to like, I mean, it's just like, and I think he's gotten to this like weird, like post almost dying and like, mm-hmm. and also in this, this, this realm of like, he's making, he's basically doing everything that he's wanted to do from a, from a cinema perspective and then from a movie perspective and what, however you feel about the movies. And I, you know, I don't, I think we've talked about this before, but I don't feel that great about the movies, but and that's okay. I mean, for the most part, but like, it's just like connecting with him for like a you know sixty to one hundred and twenty seconds. It was just like the look, it's like a direct stare into your eye, and it's like you know, it's like it's good to meet you. I don't know. It was like really, it was really bizarre. You don't really and like Jason Mewes didn't really look up from the signing. He was like, oh, it's right. a cool poster, and just kind of signed it and went on. And but you know, he was clearly distracted the entire time that 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 um, he was signing things for people. And um, but like Kevin was like, it's just crazy how good he is at that and like just genuineness of i don't know i don't know you just don't get it a lot like it's just it just was it was taken aback and like as critical of i have been <laughs> of kevin's movies as of late i i i find it like it was it was um 
Shocking is not the right word, but just, I, I, not even really surprising. It was just kind of I, maybe refreshing and, and just, um, I don't know. It was like you don't really get that a lot in um, in those types of environments, or at least it's, when you do, it's rare. And for him to like have met hundreds of people that day and throughout the weekend been busy the entire time for him to like be present in the moment is pretty impressive really yeah, yeah i mean i i think it's i think it's fair to say that those things are shocking refreshing surprising and all of that i don't think there's anything wrong to anything wrong with with saying that because i don't know that this age of celebrity lends itself to that anyway so when it does happen even again for just a minute or two to actually feel like somebody really cares that you came out to right. get a poster signed i mean i, I think that's worth reflecting on or noticing um, unless he's just a really good actor, but we've seen live free or die hard. And I mean, he, he's fine. He's right. fine. <laughs> and I mean, I, I joke because that's what I do, but I, I mean, I do think there's something to be said for a moment of genuineness, right? A moment that feels real, especially having done that all right. day. And it's weird too, because he's got a certain type of fandom that I kind of recoil from. Mm -hmm. Not that I judge people for loving things heavily. I really don't. But it's that kind of fandom. Um, there's a sports radio station here in town called The Ticket. And it's fine. The actual, the, the, the hosts on it are really, um, they're really good. They've got a really good rapport. They've been doing it for, I mean, some of them are better than others, but the ones that have been there the longest are, are really, really impressive in what they do. The fandom that surrounds them, who kind of lives and breathes it, is just a little overwhelming. And also parroting lines and things like that just to get to be, it just, I don't know, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not what I'd like to be a part of. So like Kevin Smith's fandom, I kind of like, and like unabashed love for basically anything I kind of recoil from as well. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but this is something that we've talked about on this on this podcast as well. I'm sure we haven't talked about it as eloquently as others have, but that's not really our job. But, but, <laughs> but this idea of fandom and almost like a sycophancy, right, where everything these people do is fantastic. As long as you do it the way that I want you to do it, but as soon as you don't, then we kind of have this backlash and almost go into attack mode. But there is also that kind of living through. There is, I was thinking about this earlier, and don't ask why, this is just what <laughs> I do. But I was thinking about how I, I think I, myself in particular, I tend to frame life through various forms of art, right? Whether that's a painting, a movie, music, literature, whatever. I mean, I see life reflected in these things, and I kind of use my experience to think about, talk about, and then go back to, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. So there's nothing wrong with that, but I do think there is maybe something disturbing in completely living inside of, right, without any kind of reflection to what else is going on around you. Right. And, and I think that's what you're recoiling from, of, of, the, of the parroting lines, of the, of the only being to, only being able to talk to your quote-unquote idol in that language, in that kind of speak, like in Kevin Smith speak, right, right? Right, right. And not making like joke references around a table, but like meeting the person and just being like, remember that time yeah. when the, the, Brody... Yeah, the Chris Farley show, right? I mean, right, right. That was awesome. <laughs> but not even like, yeah, but not, like Chris Farley. <laughs> right, but not even satirically, just like <laughs> right. real. Yeah, and I think that's where that, that, that ticket, that fandom, the, the, the parroting, that's where it just, it, it almost becomes problematic. Right, right. 
Yeah. And anyway, so that all being said, <laughs> um, Christy Brinkley was there. She looks amazing for um, and for a woman of any age. She's still the uptown girl. Is still got. I it was just going to say, right? <laughs> I was just going <laughs> to. <laughs> now I have, but I actually have like Christy Lee in my head. The song Christy Lee, right, in my head. If I, if you can think of um, any worse Billy Joel songs to get stuck in my head, please, please let me know. Uh, I don't know. We didn't start the fire. Is not my favorite. So, oh, like, and I think even Billy hates that song now at this point. I wonder if you know. I wonder if Billy hates his own songs. There was look. I'm getting off topic. No, no, no. And that's, there's this no is, reason not well, to. This please. is <laughs> this is true. There was so. Did you ever listen to Jacob Dylan's music? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, sure. Did, oh, right. I've so, seen him in concert. Okay. So. Me too. That's great. This makes perfect sense, right? <laughs> um, but there was a a Rolling Stone article soon after I think that Wallflowers album came out. And it was an interview with Billy Joel because I think Billy Joel had something coming out at the same time. And Billy Joel did not like the Wallflowers album. <laughs> and this is what Billy Joel said. I like hard rock, not soft cock. <laughs> that's a weird... And I, I know. Well, one, that's just <laughs> a really weird... I don't why I'm laughing. And <laughs> it's just like, I don't even know how to process so that be, line. So because it's an uncomfortable, weird line. Right? I mean, like, you said, right. that in, you said that in an interview... Not prompted. You just <laughs> talked about this record and why you didn't like it. And this was your reasoning. And I'm thinking, okay, but you're Billy Joel. And I, when I think of hard rock, I do not think of right. Billy Joel. I don't think even Billy Joel would think he's I know. That's like, so such a weird Look, I love Billy Joel. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I do. I, it's, I grew up on so Billy Joel. So this has been a great run on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we almost got 25 episodes in. <laughs> but, I, yeah, I, I don't equate him as anything other than dad rock. I mean, at best, right? I mean, it's just... Even when he was 24. Right. <laughs> because at that point, he was right into his doo-wop phase. It wasn't even as, like, hard, you know, as, like, trying to break through phase. You know, this isn't uh, glass houses. This is, you know, straight into, it's not even 52nd Street. I mean, shit, you know. You know, <laughs> so. <laughs> Look, wasn't, I mean, wasn't The Stranger really kind of when he... That was, like, his <clears throat> magnum opus, right? I mean, like. But it was an early one, too. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. But that's got, I think that's the one you got a Italian restaurant on and like what would can be considered his, probably his, I don't know. I don't know what is considered his like, I mean, he has a whole greatest hits album, but like. He's got uh, like three of them, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like a double album. I, uh, I don't know. It was just right in my wheelhouse. Like we, when he did like after Rocky three and he went over to Russia and did the live album and like, I, I don't know, like honesty, man. That's a fun song. So it's. No, 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 look, look, I'm not going to be ashamed of liking Billy Joel, right? You no, like what you like. I, I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm just going to give you, you know who else I don't like? I mean, and this is, this is really not like a Lebowski plug, but I really don't like the, the Eagles. Eagles. Yeah. I really do. I mean, right. I remember being in high school and having friends who just loved it. I'm like, really? I'm like, why? I think Peaceful Easy Feeling is the most boring fucking song I've ever heard. Anyway. Yeah, no. Look, were... I love A-part harmonies. I <laughs> There's so many more interesting bands other than the Eagles that came out in that time frame. The Eagles just were a perfect storm of they were popular. And then when they weren't, dad rock radio was popular. Mm -hmm. And so they got played incessantly. And then that was basically it. So, I mean, it's not like it's talking about people who like have bizarre fandoms or like, yeah, people coming up to them and talking to them about things like. 
that and I, I can't imagine like other than the fact that it's made them insanely wealthy like can you imagine being jimmy buffett can you imagine having to i mean like and again i would love to have the money don't get me wrong sure but having to deal with that fandom but having to yeah the having <clears throat> to and also play margaritaville over and ad nauseum you can never not play it you have to it's probably in his contract oh I mean, and like every concert writer you must play <laughs> You want to play two songs, like Come Monday and Margaritaville, and that's basically it. I did like the James game. Yeah. Joe, Joe Walsh's band before the Eagles. I don't, I mean, I think Joe Walsh is problematic, but that's that's a different, uh, but the James <laughs> game was interesting. Um, so you saw Robert Motherwell? Um, I did, I yeah. did. Uh, I really, I really liked it. I mean, I like Motherwell's work in general. Um, this is a uh, installation at the modern um, at right now. If you happen to go listen to this and you want to go see it, yeah, it, it's it's pop really on over. It's really good. Fifty three pieces of his, I think. Yeah, or along those lines yeah. And, I, I didn't um, I didn't catch the number, so that's that's good. But it, I mean, it's it's it spans his career. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's, that's got like what early really, stuff. Yeah, that was what was really interesting. Did to you me. go and, see it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, did, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We went last Friday. Oh, excellent. Um, and uh, yeah, he was prolific right up almost till his death yeah. i mean so that was pretty impressive and it it does a really good job of like uh compartmentalizing where he was in his life when he was painting these particular things i, I thought it was really good yeah I, I that's what i really liked about it. i thought it was really well curated and really well put together to see his kind of progression and how he got into this kind of abstract pure kind of painting and playing with color and i mean his early stuff reminded me a lot of like um uh, Agnes Martin's work, mm -hmm. and also um, Sean Scully's work, another artist who they had a big show of a year and a half ago or so. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, I thought it was great. Um, so check it out if you're yeah. in the Fort Worth area. Yeah, and the catalog's good too, so go buy the catalog. <laughs> 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 um, I, but this this is not an it, art podcast. It's not. I don't know. It's not. It's not a music yeah. podcast. It's you know. It's not a Comic Con podcast. I don't um, even know what this podcast is. <laughs> At times, it's hard to discern. It really is. Uh, <laughs> should should we should we so actually yes, talk let's, about let's some films? Let's talk about movies. Let's talk okay. about the Hidden Fortress. Nineteen fifty eight, Akira Kurosawa, Toshiro Mifune, and uh, remind me of the actresses. Do you have to have it? I mean, this was her acting debut. Uh, young Princess Yuki. Um, Misa Uhara. That sounds correct. Yeah. Yes, that is. Yes. I mean, I, I, whether or not I'm pronouncing that correctly or not, um, that's what it looks like to me. Okay, the story follows two greedy <laughs> peasants in feudal Japan, uh, Taihi and Matsushichi, who are returning home from a failed attempt to profit from a war between neighboring clans. En route, they encounter the remnants of the defeated tribe that consists most notably of a famous general and a princess who are hiding out in a fortress in the mountains. General... Roku Rota Makabi and Princess Yuki need to escape into allied territory with their large supply of gold so they can rebuild their shattered clan. To do this, the peasants are tricked into helping them with the promise that they will receive a large share of the gold when, <clears throat> when the destination is reached. Along the way, the general's prowess is put to the test as he must guide the four and later five with the inclusion of a freed slave through close encounters with the pursuing enemy. And out of difficult situations, the bumbling peasants manage to get them into. <laughs> so, what do you think about uh, the hidden fortress? No, so, so this is uh, this is obviously. So, we watched this as a part of a um, 
a Lucas before Luke type screening. We were doing some uh, George Lucas influences. So all throughout the month of, and actually weirdly enough, it coincided with uh, us talking to Devin Goodman and, and talking about Star Wars as well. Uh, and then we watched the Dam Busters as our virtual screening, which was a uh, another influence on Lucas, specifically the trench run at the Death Star. But as you watch a Hidden Fortress or the Hidden Fortress, you are clear to. I mean, from from the the scope of everything to the R two D two three three PO character to the princess, uh, and, and and you know Luke Han amalgam essentially in the general. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see where Lucas drew most of his inspiration for his story from the Sakura Kurosawa movie. Also stealing, straight up stealing the side swipes and 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 camera movements and and so this is this is clearly a a, a is a Star Wars pre precursor that okay. and that that this was the this was the, the this is a blueprint for that Lucas Lucas used for uh, for Star Wars. I mean, so one hundred percent, and I think that's how I came to actually see this film. So I mean, years and. Years and years ago, <laughs> right. you know, first starting to, I think, get into get, get into art house cinema, uh, classic films, whatever you want to call them, um, coming across something that was like, oh, these are the films that inspired Star Wars. And it's like, OK, well, let me go check that out. I'd seen I think by this point, I'd probably seen Seven Samurai and maybe some other Kurosawa. But then this one, finally, you know, seeing it. You see just, I mean, the, the direct parallels in it, but it's just, it's so good. I mean, I, I love this film. It is nonstop. It is, it, I mean, it's just a really good action film as well. Right. It, it, it's almost <clears throat> to the point where you wish Lucas had a cribbed more than he did, <laughs> right, right? Because Yuki is, is as, as, as self-assured and as how strong-willed uh, Princess Leia is, Princess Yuki knows her shit way more than than Leia. Even Leia does, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and given the same age, and um, you know, there's this scene at the beginning where um, the generals basically let his sister uh, go off and pretend that she's Yuki, and then she gets killed. Um, and so that's a good thing in this case because they think Yuki's killed, so they won't go off and look for her again because this this war is still going going, and Yuki is is extremely upset and 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 um is is you know saying that her life is not less important than mine just because i'm royalty and and she does that throughout the film of like just kind of um knowing i mean like not overstating her place because she's just happens to be royalty whereas you could play it with star wars leia doesn't really have a chance to play up her royal you know her because again she's thrown into a a situation where it's now it's no longer even important um you know her her it can be used it can very smallly be used against her and by the time you get to empire she is completely um you know they're, they're completely entrenched with the rebel forces so there's mm-hmm. no really reason for her to to be you know be princess leia at this point right and 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 even as she's always as as strong-willed as she is in star wars she is still a damsel in distress mm. she still needs saving where i think princess yuki here and and i think kurosawa does this so much through her kind of like physical the way he physically depicts her on screen where she towers above people right she Mm -hmm. stands kind of on this cliff looking above people arms akimbo and just like straight up erect and strong and she's like that throughout the entire film she 
Yeah, she never puts herself above anyone else, even as she understands the reason why uh, Mifune's sister had to kind of sacrifice herself. She's still sort of indignant about this. This isn't how this should work, which I think she's showing kind of all of the hallmarks of what we want a good leader to be, right? To understand that the sacrifice is also needed on their part, right? Not just on those who serve them. I really like how he plays and subverts with the silent woman trope in this film. So there's a part in the film where she um, has to play mute and, and kind of trick people into thinking that she is just a, a peasant. And so she can't speak because, like, the way she speaks will give her away, right? <laughs> right. She's too eloquent. She's too intelligent, all that stuff. Even, even silent, the way she acts with her face, the way, again, like, her physical movements, uh, the way that she, you know, yeah, physically moves around around the set, it's just, it's a show of strength, right? It's a show of, of female strength and a show of female power. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, too, I mean, I, what, not, not to, like, really tear down Star Wars as, as opposed to The Hidden Fortress, <laughs> mm-hmm. but what, I mean, I, I think The Hidden Fortress is funnier. I think it's more grand in scope. And 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 to, to Lucas's credit, he didn't have the ability to do what Kurosawa was. I mean, like, I don't necessarily know if he had the, the budget to do what Kurosawa was attempting to do. The, the mm-hmm. scene where they are, um, you know, the two peasants are trying to find each other in, in, in the midst of the of the you know, these two warring factions on this, basically on this huge stairwell that are, you know, tearing each other apart. Um, I don't know if, uh, if, if it's reasonable to expect um, Lucas to be able to pull off something on that scale. Um, but there's nothing in Star Wars, save maybe the final trench run that has as, as grand of like scope and also like the way that it's being shot. Like there's the scene where Mifune is, um, riding the horse and he's got the sword, you know, on oh, it, the yeah. on his, you know, he's up and he's hunting down those, the, the, um, you know, the opposing forces so they can't tell them that they're still alive. And he's basically riding to gun them down and then runs into, uh, you know, basically a, a, a faction of all of them and has to fight an old nemesis of his, those whole, none of those scenes. And it's surprising to me, I guess you get a little bit of that with Obi-Wan and Darth Vader, but the sword play in Star Wars is so much less and mm-hmm. so much more stilted because you've got someone who's in, you know, basically a robot costume and, you know, an, <laughs> and an older Alex Guinness, Alex Guinness, who is not, you know, who's not necessarily going to be known for his physical prowess, right? right so, I mean, like, right. them fighting is not going to be... So you get more swashbuckling action in Star Wars, but, um, but just to see... Mifune and like his just I mean his physicalness of is just so impressive right and that that really long drawn out any which way you can kind of <laughs> fight scene yeah. between the two samurais um it's just I don't know that's so so much well it's just so well done I think one of the things that would have served Star Wars a little bit better too had it have been really continually told from the aspect of C-3PO and R2-D2. Right. Um, or Arturo, if you, as we were. <laughs> <laughs> um, because that's one of the things that was so different. And what, you know, what Lucas was, took inspiration from. But that was one of the things that was so different about this story is that it's a story about a, a kind of a damsel in distress who obviously has um, uh, it, it has power in her own in a, in a way. And, in a, in a, you know, a man who has to carry her across the lines. But it's being told from a lower class viewpoint and from also from a, a scoundrel's viewpoint mm-hmm. as well. 
I don't know if there's a way to make R2-D2 and C-3PO scoundrels in that sense without right. actually making them human. Right. But to tell it from a story of, because you lose that once you get to uh, Obi-Wan. Mm-hmm. Like it's a story told from C-3PO and R2-D2 story until you get down to Tatooine and you, and you, and then that point it's now it's Luke's story, right? I mean, it's now it's the hero's journey. It would have been interesting to see that hero's journey, especially, and again, I know you don't have all of this story being told now, but like now that you know the entire nine movie arc and you know where those two characters exist in the, in the entire, at least from the first six, it would have been interesting to see that knowledge base of like, oh, we, now we can, and especially, I mean, it's hard because R2-D2 doesn't speak English, <laughs> right? But, well, I think, I think that's the trouble is that, because I, I think on one hand, it could be really, really fascinating to see this point of view of just these robots, just these droids, right? Um, who have some human-like qualities, but of course aren't. And like you said, R2-D2 just speaks in bleeps and bloops and, and whirls. Um, the other thing I, I really like about the Hidden Fortress in terms of that, in terms of the point of view from these two peasants and scoundrels, is that they don't, they're never really redeemed. No. I mean, they're, and I, say, I say redeemed, but I mean like in terms of that hero journey, they never, like they're always kind of shit heels, even up until the very end. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, li- I mean, I like that kind of complication too. I mean, they end up getting... A kind of reward for their help, but it's almost like they didn't help really that much. <laughs> they were more of a hindrance than anything, and in constant sort of, there was always this constant danger of them turning on on these other people. Which I mean, they do, they do, they right, do yeah. but like to no end, right? right. To, to no sort of like reward of their of their own. Um, and so, I mean, so C three PO and R two D two would have obviously um, better. Character, right? right. <laughs> right. Their characters of better right. moral right. upstanding, but yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I wonder. I mean, is Star Wars a better story told from the outside? It's hard to I say, right? Yeah. I mean, that, given yeah. given fifty years or forty years now at this point, um, <laughs> speculation <laughs> is is a hobby. But, but 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 that that scoundrel aspect and this desire to get money, it, that whole character trait is put on Han Solo, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's his it's his story of being. Um, this outsider who you never really know whether or not he's going to turn or not. But, and see, again, another thing that would have made Star Wars a little bit more interesting is keeping Han Solo a little bit more in the grays, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's more interesting. And the, the, I guess and I think the problem with Star Wars is that it's such a simple story. It's so cut and dry. There's way more going on in the Hidden Fortress oh, yeah. than in Star Wars. Star Wars, you've got to, you know, you've got to get this to, you know, this point to this point, and, you know, that, that's basically it. Had, you know, and you get a little bit, I think, with that, uh, with... Um, with Lando going into Empire as well, where you go, now he he kind of does what Han does in Star Wars, where you don't he goes off and like leaves because he's not getting you know his money's paid and yeah. he's done. Um, the fact that he comes back again that that's his redemption arc, and of course now that Lando saves Luke at the end, that's his redemption arc as well. There's that a little bit of uncertainty I think would have helped those characters a little bit, um, and I guess maybe sitting in seventy seven. And you don't know that Han's going to come back, and maybe, maybe, maybe knowing that now, yeah, when a little bit of sure. retrospect helps, <laughs> sure, out, right, sure. <laughs> I also don't. I mean, I, I don't feel like Lucas is that kind of filmmaker mm. or a kind of 
that that kind of artist either. I don't think he has. Well, I don't want to imply that Lucas only sees the world in binary oppositions. <laughs> but <laughs> we've all seen Howard the Duck. We understand how it works. <laughs> right, but closer to that than maybe Shades of Grey. <laughs> what do you mean? There's something else than just good or bad. I don't understand. <laughs> so, um. Yeah, it's 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 I, what I find what I find interesting, and what I what the the entire month of like looking at those influences, mm-hmm. um, it reminds me of like a, a good rap song and how they are able to like a good um, you know someone a good producer who can pull all together all these samples and like slow them down, speed them up, and construct a completely different thing. And even if yeah. you're using just a six second drum beat or or mm-hmm. just a, a mm-hmm. you know, it's crazy how the the vision that it takes to pull all of those pieces together and put together something completely new i don't think lucas i mean like look lucas i think lucas's genius like we said last week is really the machinations behind doing the special effects and and i don't think i don't think anyone's going to say that lucas is an amazing storyteller The, the stuff that lucas did um you know that probably is held up as the best stories really are the raiders pieces i mean and that's the stuff that he's working with spielberg on right where he you really know, is sort of being more of a producer at that point. Right. And if you look at, I mean, the storylines uh, is Star Wars alone. I mean, it really, it, you know, a, the Empire Jedi written by completely different. I mean, like, and I know he has story right. inputs. I mean, but like, so I I think Lucas's strength is being able to, is the has have the vision to know what he wants on screen and has, and has the the ability to, to create the technology to put all that together. Um yeah, I don't know. I lost, so, I lost my thread there. So but. Lucas is is Dilla, J. Dilla. <laughs> yes, yes. But I guess I mean looking at that in like <laughs> episode four is his donuts. Is that what's right? <laughs> right. But looking watching like watching something like the Dam Busters and like seeing how he's taking pieces of that and then still doing the trench yeah. run and and um you know there's a couple of other like World War II um, aerial movies that that they throw in together like that. Um, it's, it's interesting, the pieces to me that that he pulls out from the hidden fortress. I mean, like, I don't know why the, the camera transition spoke to him. Like, I mean, cause that would have been really the first time American audiences are seeing that. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, so, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, and and you don't really see it anywhere else. Roger Christian does it in battlefield earth to much lower, uh, results. And and it's kind of like shocking because you're like, oh, this seems to be Star Wars, and I'm like, I'm not sure how we're tying these together, but, um, but yeah, it's it's, it's that 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 piece of it, and like what kind of, um, why he chose to kind of crib that. I, maybe it was just really just a call back to 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 make sure people understood that this this was an influence, and and to kind of go back and look at the Hidden Fortress. I mean, because really, that's what all of these homages. I would hope Lucas wanted people to do is to go back and review the the films that influenced him. Why else make Star Wars if you don't want people to go back and look at, at Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers and right. um, you know why do it if you don't want people to go back and look at Tarzan and 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 why make you know are all these other like serials these Western serials why make Indiana Jones I mean it's you know there's no reason right I mean so I don't know yeah I mean I I think I think that when you make a kind of collage or a kind of pastiche you want people to see the reference right you want people to go oh that's where he got that but but also i mean and and we do this artists do this all the time where they see something that someone else is doing and 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 sort of you know like it and appreciate it and then go how do i include that in my own 
how do I make that my own? How do I take that style but put my flavor on it, right? Or turn that into my very own thing? And I think that's what Lucas is doing, and I think that that's you know, valid. That's yeah, fair. Oh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> All right, anything else you want to say about I mean, I know. Look, it's, I, it's, it's a great it's film. Like, I don't know what it's yeah. like. It's like kind of breaking down Casablanca, right? I mean, it's all been done before, and it's just, I mean, like, what are we, what are we going right. to add to this? Right, Like, right. go watch. If you haven't seen The Hidden Fortress, go watch The Hidden yeah, Fortress. It's, it's, it's really, fantastic. It's really good. So let's let's talk about Master Gardener. Oh, let's, right. let's talk about part, Paul Schrader's third entry into the <laughs> Lonely Man trilogy. The Nandina is a species of flowering plant native to Eastern Asia. The smell at certain times of the year gives you a real buzz. Like the buzz you get just before pulling the trigger. I have a favorite ask. What is it? My grandniece. I would like you to take her on as an apprentice. She dropped out of school and then she ended up in a bad crowd. You'll learn how to garden. Are you satisfied with the life that you have? How would you ask that? You know, you talk a lot of shit, but there's one thing you don't talk about. What's that? Yourself. There's not much to know. You put the deep six on nine bad guys. Oh, well, it was a long time ago. Even if they're dead, you're not forgotten. Have you ever killed anyone? Why would you say that? Take off your shirt. Maya's just finding her own way. And I'm the Queen of Scotland. Gardening is a belief in the future. A belief that things will happen according to plan. Who did this to you? What are you gonna do? Time to start a new life. I have created this life. Now seems the time to break one. Aren't all of his films so yes entries into the Lonely yes. Man? Yes, yes, and that's why I found <laughs> it so funny that people kept calling this like this is the bookend to his Lonely Man trilogy. And I'm like, but wait, but like he's like, been kind of making the same film over and over, <clears throat> which which is fine, which is fine. Right. I, I don't mean to say that that is a bad thing because, I mean, again, right, we, we keep coming back to these things that are important to us. We keep telling these stories to find out something new. So, And so <clears throat> to that end, and speaking of what we just spoke of, I do think that Schrader is making these films as an, I mean, clear homage to Brisson. Oh, sure. And I, it, it, I don't know as a crusty old man... I don't know if he reads reviews. I don't know if he goes back and listens to critiques or criticisms or, or just yeah. analysis. Look, Paul, if you're listening, let us know. Reach out. We'd love to have you right. on. We've got right. a you're, you've got an open spot <laughs> okay. here anytime. We will. Yes. And I'll tell you what, we'll come to you. Right. No, absolutely. Right. Yeah. 
I know that you're living in a very special apartment building in New York now. <laughs> but, but yeah, but we've always got reason to come down. Oh, yeah, one hundred percent. But it it has to, like we talked about in the in the first reformed episode, it has to drive him crazy just a little bit that people aren't saying, "Go watch Brisson." Go watch Brisson. Like you, if you like these movies, you have any sort of connection to them whatsoever. Seriously, what are you doing? Go watch Brisson. They're all on the Criterion Channel right now, most likely anyway. Just go and, and turn them on. I, it's it's weird to me that every review doesn't start with Paul Schrader is ending his career <laughs> with a series of love letters. To the man who made, you know, inspired him to make films, um, and maybe maybe Schrader doesn't want that. <laughs> maybe he wants these to stand on his own. But I cannot imagine that being the case. Well, if I made films, I would want my name spoken in conjunction with Robert Bresson. Right, right. I, I mean, I would want people to say that in the same kind of breath. Um, I mean, because again, he. Schrader is an original. I mean, this is not the yeah, fact not, that he is. No, 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 right, right, right. But I think that that too often, right, people will mistake what he's doing for, I don't know, uh, copying or, you know, too much. And I mean, no one serious is going to think that about Schrader's films. But I mean, I do think that, yeah, he wants people to notice that, that he wants people to see the influence here. I mean, the guy wrote a fucking book on 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 transcendence right in in film right and because it's not just person but it's also drier mm -hmm. i think to a big extent um maybe i i mean i guess uzo is the other one he wrote about but, right but i really i mean you're right we see so much more person in his films than we do I especially think, these you know. last three <clears throat> yeah. yeah and and again go you know going back to we talked about pickpocket and american gigolo we talked about Diary of a Country Priest and an affliction, not affliction. I keep, I keep doing that. I keep, and I mean, it's the same thing here, right? But again, it's, it's I mean, it's a variation on a theme. Right. right? You want to give us a breakdown? Yeah. Of <clears throat> Let's do that. So horticulturalist Narvel Roth tends, <laughs> tends these to do feel like <laughs> you put these into a randomized Brisson name generator. <laughs> I know, I know. Like, so, like, what month were you born in? Like, what Pokemon what street you did you live on? Yeah. <laughs> when did you go to grade school? Um, Your name is Narvel Roth. Roth. Horticulturalist Narvel Roth tends to more than just plants on the grounds of Gracewood Gardens. With a meticulous hand and unwavering devotion, he's created an idyllic sanctuary for himself and his demanding employer, Mrs. Haverhill. But when her troubled great-niece Maya arrives seeking apprenticeship, Narvel's peaceful, cultivated life begins to unravel. Yeah, that's one, right? way, to, that's one way to put it for sure. <laughs> <clears throat> what we don't have in this summary is that Narvel is a reformed white supremacist? Potentially. Okay. Well, yeah, right? I mean, this is, this is one of the questions. I, I think this, this is the more interesting from that aspect of the three that we talk about this one because you don't really know right he got so norville gets caught he sells out his clan essentially and is living in um <laughs> for lack of a better term and is living in witness protection because of that and so that witness protection he's found a a friendly who is also an antebellum south uh grand dam i mean you know and so like 
who clearly sees things in stark black and white and wants to make America great again. Um, I mean, and, and not to say, I don't want to turn anybody off. There's no political overtones. No, not, I don't mean no. that. I was, I was being facetious. And there's no, and there's no real overt racism either. And I think, I mean, <clears throat> Sigourney Weaver plays uh, Norma, right? Or, or Mrs. Haverhill, Haverhill, whatever. Right. And I mean, there is a, she, she and Norma have a conversation early on in the film where they're sitting on the porch and, just a couple lines of dialogue tell us exactly who this woman is. There is a dog on the porch and aptly named Porch Dog. That is the dog's name, Porch Dog. <laughs> and she says at one point, um, what is it? I knew that's all he'd ever be. That's why she named him. I named him Porch Dog early on because I knew that's all he'd ever be. That told me so much about her right there. This is, you know what? This is all you're going to be. And that's what I can tell right now. And this is how she talks about her great niece, as well her grand niece, whatever, is that well she's one quote of mixed, mixed blood, blood right, 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 right. And again, tells us exactly you know we know what that means, and we know how she feels about that just from that statement. But it's just these two quick things, and you're like, oh, okay, this is she's never going to come right out and say it, but we know exactly how this woman sees other people. Oh, for sure, for sure, <clears throat> and how she sees Norval as well. Yeah. I mean, she knows who he is and where he came from, um, and, and that, that's the reason he has the position that he has. Um, but everybody else on her staff is a person of color, and um, you know, it's and it's 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 meant to be that way. She, it, it, it's not, it's not even a question. Except for her. the butler. That's true. Yeah, but but I also feel like the butler is also a Norval character as well. Yeah. Like, Right. He, but he's, he's also like the, I mean, the butler would be sort of like the face of things too. And I think, right. I don't think that's unintentional mm -hmm. on, on her part or that character's part. Yeah. Right, right. Um, I, I, <clears throat> I saw this with a group of people uh, and that were not familiar with Brissol or they were not familiar with Schrader either. <laughs> and all of them... And and they were all open to the discussion, but neither none of them really cared for the film. Um, and I think it is, and I and I said something, and I even categorized it as like this will probably be the douchiest thing I say all night long. But like <laughs> liking this movie is not the point of this movie. Right. I would even say that Schrader doesn't give a shit if you like this right. movie or not. It's a more it's it's about the conversation that it evokes right it's about you looking inward and seeing if you can if you can find yourself in any of these characters um in these stark contrasts and and, and so you know this movie progresses and of course i would say that it wears it's i, I think it, it it kind of reveals itself pretty quickly i mean i i could tell who norval was mm. You know, even if you're not, if you hadn't read about the movie, I could, you could tell who Norval was. I mean, obviously from the, from the porch dog and from the other things, but I knew who he was when I saw him in the haircut yeah. and, and how he's being presented, how he's presenting himself. Um, and, and I, you know, again, it's just a matter of like these extremes that no one would, you that people clearly do go to, but you would hope that it's, it's somewhat subdued. Do you find yourself in these roles and do you find yourself thinking along these lines and do you find yourself, connecting in any sort of way with these characters it's not about the it's about the journey necessarily it's not about right. the entire story per se i don't know maybe i'm no 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 no, no but that brings up a question for me so knowing who narvel is but then watching him around let's call them his employees i mean they're they're also more like trainees and 
apprentices than they are employees, the way that he talks to them, treats them, the way that he works with them in the garden. And again, like these are all also people of color. So what does that say about his being reformed, not being reformed? If he is there, and I mean, by all accounts, he treats them all with dignity. But he also keeps, you know, he also keeps himself um, as a as a distinct line between the front of the house and the back of the house. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, he also has all of them. It's also a subordinate role, mm-hmm. right? And for no real good reason other than the, the nature of his being is that he's studied, right? And right. he's and um and he's knowledgeable about horticulture, um, but. I, I I think that that draws into question whether or not he truly is. I think it's one of those things of like assimilation allows you to maintain your civility, but also to maintain your bigotry at the same time. And you see Norval in, in, in where you don't see it in First Reformed and where you don't see it in the card counter is Norval goes back into his role relatively easily when he's dealing with the drug dealers that, that um, you know, <clears throat> pop back up. Right. He bounces right back into his role. Now, I feel I do think that, um, you know, ultimately he is is torn by it, and I think he wants to escape it. But I also think it's allowed him a level of comfort because he now has this role where he can hide out from the people who are you know trying to find him. Um, but he can also then still service and and live this you know life of of uh, privilege. Uh, that is, but in, in, but in, in he's still kind of kept under foot as well, but, but it allows him to kind of skirt the line between the two worlds of redemption and still being able to have a, you know, you know having the advantages of, of having a, you know, rich aristocracy kind of like, uh, you know, woman who can look over him and, and provide him with housing and money and gifts and what and you know sex and what have you yeah it, it seems to be more like dinner and sex that he, and, <laughs> right. and, and he doesn't necessarily seem thrilled about it all and part of that is i think the way schrader shows us sex as well i mean even an american gigolo <laughs> right i mean right. it was a pretty kind of like stilted but I, and I think intentionally right i mean i don't i don't but i don't know i mean maybe <laughs> and this is also the guy that did, you know, hardcore. So, um, <laughs> right, right. But there's also, I think, maybe uh, a metaphor of organization in this film too. That that maybe I think you're you're touching on with Narvel and how he's keeping. He's like everyone is in their place, mm-hmm. right? And I, that's the character, not me. Don't like you know. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, I, I again, I joke, but I do want to be like careful about how that's framed. Where I think that he also sees gardening. This kind of gardening where the the estate that they're working on, this is a meticulously sort of planned out and organized and structured garden. It's not how, what he describes to us as like a natural garden where things just kind of grow and then you sort of, you know, trim or sort of shape. This is a very kind of, you know, man-made, man sort of organized, man-controlled garden. And so maybe that also feeds in with this like, this is fine as long as this is how things are. You know, things are meticulously placed. My life is organized. My hair is brill creamed where it should be. Right, right. I mean, right. Every um, hair is in place, yeah. And, and yes, well, and, on, and, and, on and Thursdays she, I go have dinner and sleep with the, with the boss. Right. But, and you see that even in the organization of the, of the tools in the shed and, like, 
I mean, obviously, he's living in a very sparse kind of one-room um, housing unit. On, yeah, it's on, very Spartan, like, cottage. <clears throat> but, I mean, like, when they're hanging the shovels, there's four shovels, and they're all hung, like, equidistant apart right. at the same level. Well, there um, are 48 different kinds of hose. <laughs> right. I've only encountered, like, 35 in my, my life. I still I haven't, I haven't caught them all. <laughs> That's just in Texas. <laughs> right. I do, find, I do find it interesting that, that Norval's life starts to un ravel as soon as he breaks out of the garden right as soon as he leaves the grounds he really can't relate and i think that's you know one of the i think it's i it's funny to me because i think schrader weirdly enough kind of breaks out of that mold more in this movie than anything else that he's done as of late with these flights of fancy and these like little uh telling bits of like uh i don't know just let's like ephemera or just kind of set pieces but when he goes and meets with his parole officer and he's and he's wearing a shirt that says we should all be feminists Feminists. in it and i can just you can just see like him not relating i mean it's just it's obviously like a line to say i don't know that guy right i mean like i know that i'm supposed to and he helps me out because in certain things but like we don't connect or we do not relate whatsoever he tries (laughs) because remember because the his his handler says you know i'm retiring soon and Norval goes, well, maybe we can, you know, have coffee. And he's like, doesn't work that way. <laughs> so, right. but, this, but this, again, shows us how Norval, like, doesn't really understand the outside world anymore. And, I, I mean, I would say that he never did. You know, if you're, if you're a white supremacist where you violently hate and harm people who don't look like you or ascribe to your same beliefs, then you don't understand how the world works anyway. Right. I mean, you really don't. Um, if that's a trigger warning for anyone, fuck off. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, you you don't. And I, and I think that now that he has found his – he's found a place that he is kind of at peace with in the garden. When he's outside of that, again, he's just like, I don't. I don't know how this works. Later on, when he falls back into this different pattern, you understand he knows how to move around and stay undetected. But again, like that's not the real world anyway. Right, right, right. Is, is Maya the character? Is, okay, so when Maya comes in, I, I do think that this, when you obviously see the, see the shift, right, that starts to open him up and just like allows him to, and it's what's, you know, uh, and it's, obviously I know it's part of the story, but where she's forced upon him and and really Sigourney Weaver is for lack of a better term, wanting to make her fall into line with a, with a white lifestyle that we can present her as being worthy of being at the house. Right. She wants to find a way for her to pass. Right. I mean, really is that? Yeah. But Maya comes in and she's basically in the seventies pastiche of like, you know, big round glasses and wearing tie dye. I, I, you know, and this as, uh, Norval starts to see her as vulnerable and as some and as human and says and not as as rigid as the as you know she, he's like obviously Weaver mistakes what happens here she mistakes who Norval is because as he starts to talk with her and again obviously this is you know like real life as well as long <laughs> as you start to humanize people right as soon as you start to connect and he's teaching her these things that he knows that he probably had to learn after his white supremacist days were over. Um, he starts to kind of connect with her and, and want to protect her as her life is still kind of falling apart and we're, you know, in, in, in the quote unquote real world outside of the garden. Um, I do find all of um, what 
Schrader does there, and I know that it can lose people in the moment, but like what he does there when in their love scene and the the whimsy that he has mm -hmm. afterwards mm -hmm. when they're driving the car and the flowers mm -hmm. are blooming. And that's really like, you know, when you look at the garden of uh, Gracewood, it's an ugly kind of very kind of harsh, but not a lot of color. It's ugly is the wrong term, but it's very shining esque. You know, it's it's very um, mechanical. Well, it's also, I, I mean, I don't know. It's winter. True. I mean, true. It, it, so I, most of it's so said. This yeah, was so. filmed in Louisiana. I'm not sure where exactly it's set. I mean, we never. Right. It's really hard to say here, but I know it was filmed in Louisiana. So, um, I'm, 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 and they're getting ready for the spring kind of fundraiser when the big attraction is the garden. So I'm assuming that it's going to sort of. <laughs> come back up, right? right? Bloom, and it's right. going to sort of bloom. But I mean, I, I think that's interesting too because we're in this kind of garden that is in a um, stasis is not really, it's in hibernation, right? And yet we're watching something else grow. Right. right? I don't know, am I taking too much no, no, stretch there? So. But no, I mean, I think, I think so. and I, so I don't think that's an accident where we're like, this is sort of, this is dead, or this is sort of in its in its sort of you know regeneration phase, but this is starting to sort of blossom and grow and and change, right? Um, I do think that that sort of post-sex whimsy scene is something that Schrader did in First Reformed, right? I mean, that was supposed to be more of a platonic, right? You know, connection, but again, that same kind of we're floating through the solar system true, over Earth, true. right? And and I mean, that's exactly what I thought of right? going back there, those parallels, because he didn't do that in Card Counter. I right. mean, we see, you see an it a actual... little bit when they like walk through the, the lights. That's and, you true. Know, after, you know, they kind of walk yeah. through the grounds together after yeah. they've had sex. Or, yeah. And but, so there's a little bit of that kind of levity there. But too. it's more, but it's also more of like a grounded moment. I mean, because right. we know that like as they're driving um, down the highway and the grass starts to just, you know, become luminescent. We know that's not really right, what's really happening, right? <laughs> right. That, it's, that it's a clear, clear metaphor. And the same thing in First right. Reform. There's a train going into a, a, into a, <laughs> into into a, a tunnel. tunnel somewhere, it's right. like, <laughs> there's a rocket ship launching. Right? <laughs> Fireworks <laughs> are going off. <laughs> oh, wait, I think that's a metaphor for something. <laughs> Semiotics are cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, I do like that, like that callback. Um, where do I, where do I want to go with this? Uh, because I don't, well, can we just talk about the sex scene? Yeah, for me. So, so this was well. They go on the run, right? So, Maya has a kind of uh, ex-boyfriend, current sort of drug dealer. There's a fight. She gets beat up, um, and eventually. Oh wait, when does what happens? When does she? When does Norma kick them out? That's after. That's oh. after all of that, because then she, Norma no, sees. It's before, oh, so it's, it's, she gets, she oh, gets right, beat up. They hadn't had sex yet. Right, she, right. Okay, so she, she assumes she, they are, but they're not. Right, she, Maya gets beat up. Um, he lets her Nor stay. Nor Norville goes to confront the boyfriend and, and, and his friend. Basically, and, 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 but they don't fight at that point. No, he, he asked the cop to go check. He asked the cop to go talk to right, him. Right, but remember when the guy calls him Proud Boy? And, right, like, so. but that's, that's when they're leaving. I thought that was. So, so. Okay, so she gets beat up. Narvel goes to his handler and is like, hey, can you go talk to this guy and tell him not to mess with this girl? And he's like, yeah, sure, whatever. Narvel lets Maya stay instead of going back home. 
Norma Sigourney Weaver doesn't want that to happen. She's like, no, we all have to make our own way. We all have to like figure <laughs> things out, blah, blah. Norma's like, whatever, she's going to stay. So she stays. And at one point, she he goes to check on her, and she makes a pass at him. Maya makes a pass at Narvel. Narvel, you know, kind of backs up. And I mean, and, basically because he's got Nazi tattoos, and she didn't, he didn't want her to take his shirt off. Basically. Right, right. But anyway, That's he, what kind of brings him out of it. <laughs> but he leaves the her cabin and that's when norma sees that and the next night they're all having dinner and she has too much to drink and like yells at both of them and tells them that you know they're both fired and get the fuck out right that's when they hop in his truck and go back to her place to get stuff for her and that's when he confronts um, the two drug dealers and then later on they go and tear up the garden then he goes and beats them up. Okay. Hey, but at one point, <laughs> okay, so, but at one point he confronts yeah. them outside of their apartment. Right, that's when she's in her apartment packing a bag. Right, but I, okay, so, <laughs> this is, I, this is, I we probably should have read up that because it's been a minute since I saw it. Um, but, yes, the, it, but she's up in her apartment, and also she's doing drugs Correct. at that point. Correct, And so, and, but then there's a house party where he goes and mm-hmm. tortures them. Right. That is after, after, the, after the garden gets yeah, terrible. Okay, because he goes back, like he gets a call and he goes back to the garden. He f- he knows or finds out who did it. And but Maya's there when he tortures those guys too, right? Right, right, because she sets them up. Right. right. So he's like, look, you need to call them, find out where they are. And she's like, yeah, they said I could just come by whenever. <laughs> right. Like, all's forgiven, cool, right? If I just want to buy more drugs or whatever. And, and she's, you know, a pretty young woman. And right, so... They're that's, drug dealers. Yeah. And then, <laughs> right, right. And that's when they go to that house party. And and he breaks, basically breaks their legs with like a ball peen hammer. Because, you know, she makes a comment about how she wants to kill them. And so he's like, he gives her a gun and says, okay, go ahead, kill them. And she's like, I don't, can't do it. And he's like, you know, that's fine. Right. Which I think was probably the idea anyway. Well, I hope. Right. To be like, you don't want to go down this path. But he also tells those guys, like, you need to remember me. And so he like, breaks think, her leg. Right. And Norville gives Maya an out early on, too. Mm-hmm. After she gets beat up, she's staying at his place and he takes his shirt off as he's um, <laughs> as, as, as he's journaling. Well, this is as the, when they're on the run. Right. And this was, was so weird. So so here I want to go back to this this shirtless journaling thing. But they. <laughs> You know, he's like, look, we got to go kind of on the run. We got to move around. But they never go too far because he's able to meet back up with his handler or new handler, you know, within like an hour or two. So they don't go very far. And they just, but they're in like four different motels. And so I'm like, how far away are they going? You're like, where are they on the run? It's a weird sort of like, you know, radius that they stay in. But yeah, he comes at a certain point. And he's like, I, you know, she needs to know kind of who I am. And so he sits down, <laughs> takes his shirt off, props the mirror up, right, in a way, over the, over the desk <laughs> in the hotel room, over a way that he can see her and she can see more of him. Yeah, it was weird. <laughs> but I think that's part of it, right? It's supposed to, all of that's supposed to be unsettling. The sex scene, which we haven't really talked about, but like, um, you know, they both get naked in front of one another. And, you know, he's got his his um, white supremacist tattoos and then he kneels down in front of her. Right. And basically, in, you know, in submission to her and mm-hmm. basically saying mm-hmm. whatever you want. 
Right, whatever you want, and also this is not who I. I mean, like, so I, this is never who I would have been. This is who I am now. Like, right. I am not Sigour. I'm no longer under the thumb of Sigourney Weaver, or, or in, I'm not trying to. He's basically saying I am yours. I mean, right. for all, right. Into, yeah, right. Um, and then that's when she's like, "You will remove those tattoos." He's like, "Yeah, <laughs> right." <laughs> I mean, are these like? Is there a reason he didn't get rid of the tattoos before? I mean, are these reminders of who he doesn't want to be? Are these reminders of who he was? Are these reminders of who he still is? I mean, that's, I don't know, that's a curious question. Or is he like, mm, it's too much money and it hurts? I don't right. I don't know. Right. I mean, because they're, like, huge. I'm just, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, so where do you think it fits in the three? <laughs> um, or in just in, uh, in general in regards to Schrader's filmography? I think it's good. I really like it. Um, I think it's better than, a car, than car, the card counter. Yeah, I do too. Not as good as First Reformed. Mm -hmm. I think First Reformed is, I think it's his, I think it's his best film. Yeah, I agree. I okay, think said I, mean, that. I think I think we've said, I think that, we've we said that too. To, but um, I, I do think the first reformed is his masterpiece. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's what I, I wonder. These films are so inaccessible and they're so small. Like I, I wonder, looking back, if he and I think we said this when we're doing Trader too. I wonder if he's going to get the recognition that he deserves. Because this honestly, a, like, I mean, like the, these three films, and again, I know I didn't care for the card counter as much as I like these other two, but I, I still think it's an interesting movie. Um, I think the three actors that he's gotten to play these roles are really spot on and yeah, great. Yeah. I, I don't I don't always agree with this with the secondary cast. But in <clears> but in this <throat> case, I think I think everyone I think that's probably what Master Gardener has over, over the, the card two. counter. Well, yeah. Especially over the card counter. Yeah. But even First Reformed, I don't think every single role works perfectly. Um, I don't think Cedric the Entertainer works all that great. And I know that I may sound a little... That was uh, the one I was going <laughs> to... Right. I, I mean, I, I just don't think that they're... Like, I don't think Cedric... And it's... I don't think Cedric and Tiffany are... Can carry the gravitas of these roles. I think someone like Sigourney... I, I think there's other people that could have done that better. And I think maybe maybe it's a budgetary reason or... I don't know. I, I'm not going to like... I don't say they were, they were bad. I'm just saying that they kind of stood out. Um, well, I so think I, they were being asked to do really new and different things from what they've done in the past, and so I think and part, they're both comedians too. Like, well, right. so like it's, it's, it's so it's I think part of it is is on us as well. Like, the, and I mean, like the viewer, not you sure. and I, right? But <laughs> but where where we're like, oh wait, she's supposed to be funny. She's not funny. Hmm, that's weird. I think very much in the same way, maybe as people first. Well, Jim Carrey is not the best, I think, analog for this, but. Because when you see him in, you know, Eternal Sunshine, you're like, okay, wow, there's that's mm -hmm. something different. But, you know, you expect a certain thing, for better or worse, when you see certain actors and actresses, you know, playing roles. And I think the th same thing with Cedric the Entertainer. I mean, and, and these are both very big personalities, too. And to, to see them really kind of rein themselves right. in, that's got to be something really difficult and different from what they've ever done in the past. So For sure, yeah. for sure. Um, I, I just I just wonder again, like, is yeah. he going to in, in the pantheon of great American directors, especially people who are doing really their best work right now, uh, is he going to be recognized? I, it's it's interesting to me that this movie is being I, I was it is being made like and then the two movies we're going to talk about today, like how <laughs> like I, I find it very refreshing that in the age of bullshit that's being put out for streaming that we do seem to have a very healthy independent film scene right now and again i don't have any idea how much master gardener cost or how much 
any of these other films that I that we've kind of talked about. But like when we talk about this movie or Bo is Afraid or right. there are these like, I mean, even The Lighthouse, there, there's, I, there are these small distribution houses that seem to be fronting these movies. Um, and I'm here for it. I'm really oh. glad that we are absolutely getting these films, even though they may not be getting making, like, I don't know. You didn't sit down and fund Master Gardener thinking that Master Gardener was going to give you 10 times your investment. No. Right. I no. mean, like it came, it was at the theaters for a millisecond and then it was immediately on video on demand. I'm hoping that people go out and watch it. I'm hoping that people recognize all three of these movies. And I look forward to the when the day that I really would love to see Schrader's films get the criterion treatment or some sort of niche, um, uh, you know, distribution house treatment before he passes away where he can go and do commentaries and, and kind of give us his insight. Uh, and it's probably not what he's interested in at this point, but it's, but you know, we're, um, you know, can you contrast it with someone like Scorsese who's getting hundreds of millions of dollars to do films? And look, I'm, glad, I'm glad for it, but hundreds of millions of dollars to do films at the end of his career. Um, someone like Schrader who's working on a micro budget and still being able to tell these ridiculously powerful stories, getting amazing performances out of, you know, Edgerton Hawk and, and uh, Isaac. Not that those people aren't good actors anyway, but I mean, like, really being able to pick the, the people who really fit his pieces well. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I just, it's, it's great. I hope, I don't know if this is, if this is Schrader's last film, I think it's a great one to go out on. I mean, and I, I like I said, I do think I do, like I said, I do think first reformed is, is his masterpiece, but I am really, really happy that he's able to make these types of movies, um, you know, at this stage in his career. Yeah. I, I was, I was really curious about, you know, is he going to get his due? I, cause I don't think he gets his due now. No, I don't think so. I, you know, I think there's a small, I, I think there is a small cadre of people who acknowledge his greatness and acknowledge, you know, even just these last three films, right? These last three films are better than so many other people's complete like body of work, right? Right, and we're and 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 not enough people sort of talk about these things, um, but yeah. So I hope I I hope to I hope he gets like a, a bigger kind of treatment, a bigger, um, yeah, Criterion or boutique kind of. Um, I don't know, release, um, so I can sort of collect them all and you know, <laughs> sleep with them beneath my pillow. Right. I do. I, <laughs> I did have, I did have, and this is not, I did have a question about, I become more and more curious about the women in Shader's films. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they are often... And I, I don't. I want to make make sure that I'm not accusing Trader of like misogyny or sort of sexism. But I think they're used often as as saviors, right? Sure. As as redemption vehicles, um, you know. And I know that we saw this it, to an extent in Pickpocket, um, but I just wonder if sometimes this is a misstep on Trader's part. Are these characters are these characters fully formed? Are they real characters? Or are they just kind of cardboard there meant to serve? the man to sort of go about his redemption arc and sort of be saved because I don't know. I mean, like these women aren't saying, Hey, let me, let me change you. Let me, let me fix you. Right. I, I don't, I think it's a good question. I, I don't necessarily know the answer obviously off the top of my head. I mean, looking at, uh, Amanda Seyfried and Tiffany Haddish, and I don't know the actress's name. We played Maya. I, I, um, uh, I forget her name. Did you know that he wanted Zendaya? Zendaya to do that makes sense. Yeah, the originally, but uh, I don't. I don't think physicality. Contessa would have, Swindle. Okay, 
She was great. She was um, she was fantastic. Yeah. Um, I don't think Zendaya's <clears throat> physicality would have worked with Edgerton. I think she would have been like I think uh, Maya's. I don't know the way that she carried herself. I don't, and also I. But and again, I don't think you get Zendaya to do the nude scene, and I think the nude scene right. is right. is important. And I also think the nude scene and the this is going to sound terrible, but from a Zendaya standpoint of her being so slight, yeah. Um, I, th I think you need someone a little bit more powerful yeah. and not to say that Zendaya is not, I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying? I'm trying to, you need more of a physical line. presence on right, film. Right. Yeah. And, and, and to come to contrast uh, the, these stark Nazi tattoos that right. are, you know, so you need right. someone who has a little, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> You're trying to like talk your way out. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to remove my legs with my face. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I, I will say that I, I, and coming from, obviously, you know, coming from a male perspective, I think all these women have agency. I don't think that he writes down to them, but I do think that, um, it's an overarching theme in Schrader's, uh, and, 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 you know, in Schrader's filmography of saying these, these men who have misplaced themselves in society, um, reach out to these women as sort of anchors and whether or not it's the right. The, and I think you see that with, with Norval is that he's done it in two different ways. And one is a, is an, is, is a weight, right. It's an albatross and one is truly, um, you know, a buoy. Um, I don't know. I think that um, you contrast this with uh, Betsy in, in um, taxi driver. Mm where obviously that's his story, but not his movie. You know, I, I think, again, we've, we talked about this before, but I think that, I don't know if Schrader lets his women characters uh, succumb to that kind of, like, if you look at, if you look at Maya specifically, she's the domineering one, mm -hmm. and it's going to, and it's, it's, it's really an interesting story then of, of whether or not, Norval has ever been his own man, has ever really been able to like to to step out of needing a handler, you know, and 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 whereas Ethan Hawke and Oster Isaacs clearly didn't really need that. He seemed like he was always kind of like just a damaged human being mm -hmm. um, throughout the summer. I, I, so I don't know. I, I think it's an interesting yeah. question to, to, to ask. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if Schrader's necessarily capable of, of of flipping this this script and this story i think he's like we've said he's he's told this story over and over and yeah. over again i think this is his story yeah. um but yeah no it's an interesting point yeah but i mean i think you know this is something that he saw in admittedly that he saw in pickpocket right and and and, and keeps using it i mean and you see it in light sleeper as well but and again you're right all of the female characters have agency and in this film we see a clear change in both Narvel and in Maya in who is in charge, right? It starts off that Narvel's in charge and helps her get clean and helps her kick. But then as soon as she sees the tattoos, she's on top, right? The hierarchy has, has completely changed and she is the one calling the shots. And I think that's really interesting as well. I mean, I think, I think that as human beings, we look for connection and we look for connection to help us change something we don't always like about ourselves, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think that's a lot of what's going on here. 
I think it's telling that in a film like The Card Counter, what Oscar Isaac's character tries to do with the the younger character, the younger male character, doesn't work. Right. Right. But what what happens between himself and Haddish does. And so I think that's an interesting kind of complexity there as well. That these male relationships maybe <laughs> maybe don't always function the way they should, but when well, you see that in blue collar too, right? <clears throat> I mean these these mm-hmm. these male I mean like it it ends in a fist you know in fisticuffs, yeah. right? Literally ends in fisticuffs yeah. of men who should have been there to support each other the entire time have only been sent to, you know, backstab each other and, and become unreliable after the, at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, How did again, you, so sorry. again, like, why we, again, like this is, a, is this is someone that yeah, I, again, we should be as a, as a, as an American filmmaker, we should be lifting up. Oh yeah. I, is it, is it because we have so much shit right now? Is it because we have no, so much No, I don't think like, so. I don't think so. I don't think he's ever gotten his, his yeah, due and attention. I mean, I think even with when First Reform, First Reform was almost, well, like a Paul Schrader renaissance, right? Mm-hmm. And it, even then, people weren't saying, wait, we forgot what an auteur this guy is <laughs> and how amazing he is, right? It was almost, people were like almost surprised and shocked that he could do this. And, it, and To be fair, really, he was coming off a pretty low point in his career. Sure, too. sure. But but here's the, and I don't want to compare him again to Scorsese, but we're acting like every film Scorsese made was Goodfellas. Right, sure. And and it's not. And it's not. Right, right. 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 <laughs> I, mean, I mean, look, look, look I enjoy Shutter Island. <laughs> But, but I mean, it's you know, it's yeah. not raging bull, and so. But everyone, ha- everyone is a hundred million dollar. But no, and it, I mean, yeah, it, like you're right. I mean, Gangs of New York is not. There, 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 there are small, there are dips, right? Right. I think a lot of people are apolog, you know, apologists, and 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 myself included. I'm going to throw myself on that that pyre. It's just look, I. But you're right, and given the fact that it, every single movie he comes to the table with is a is is a nine. In, you know, a nine-digit budget, right. like it's it's not it's not hard to at least grab some attention there. Um, and I would say he's never gone, you know, to the the canyons level of of, <laughs> of filmmaking. Right? But here's he's, the thing: like this is, but this is something I admire about Shader is that he will do that. Sure, right? sure. He right. will try to make a film like that. Okay, it didn't work, like not at all. But this is a guy who will continually go and try these things and try to do something a little different. He, he doesn't play it safe. I mean, I think he's aware that, that, uh, you know, any kind of misstep and he's back in sort of like director limbo. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and, and to, to that end, I would say that, that Schrader's films are better than Scorsese's films. I mean, like, especially these last three, I mean, like, you know, there's Scorsese has a very specific problem of 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 heroizing demons, and mm-hmm. it's and it he can't get beyond that. So it's yeah, I don't know. It, it, yeah, not, not to say not, not to not, not to say we have to tear someone down to, to bring someone else. No, no, and I and like, I and I wasn't trying. I was only trying to sort of sure. like compare like you know peaks and valleys and dips in 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 a way. But look, I mean, I think this is how. I don't know. This is how art and culture works, right? We have our favorites. We have sort of anointed ones, right? But I just, I don't think, yeah, I don't think Schrader's ever gotten his due. And I just think that these are, again, these are films that, while they're not experimental, like super, super art house, they're well enough off, I think, 
the beaten path where people are sort of like, oh, it's about a gardener. Why would I go see that? Right. Or the people you went and saw it with who are kind of like, what the, what the fuck was, what did I just watch? I don't, I mean, this doesn't feel like a difficult film to me. And I don't, and I'm not trying to sort of like big no, no. up my intellectual cap, you know, capabilities, <laughs> but I, no, no, no. I mean, like the people that I went with, or and I wasn't one's a, no, one's a literal doctor, and and one's a, I mean, like again, they, they're all they're all intelligent people. They just are not as opposed to like all, a metaphysical doctor or a metaphorical <laughs> yes, doctor. I, yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, they're not a chiropractor. I get that. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess I, I, I to that point, I do think that these require a little bit more. I don't know. I don't know Attention. where you, I don't know where you draw that line. It, it's I, it's it, I will say this. Let me just say it like this. Yeah. It's not these are not casual viewer movies. Right. This is not something you right. can come into. I mean, like and I, look, a casual viewer can clearly come in and watch The Master Gardener and get everything out that we got out of it or whatever it is that we're bringing to the table, all this existential nonsense that we bring to the table. Like right. In, it's, it's, introspection it's like, and yes, and right. existential nonsense. But no, no, this is true. Um <laughs> But I will say that this is not um, that it does. It, 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 I will say I enjoyed this more knowing Schrader's history, sure. knowing Brisson. I mean, knowing where this was all going. Like, I liked this from the fucking first from the opening crawl. Right? Oh, I mean, so, so did like, I. But this is a movie that I I knew I was going to like. And and so I went in like knowing all the beats. I knew all the beats. I knew everything that was going to happen here. Not, not, not specifically, but I knew. Right. I, I've heard this right. song before, right? So I knew when it, all this came about. I but knew. this is the same thing people say about Marvel and superhero films. They're like, well, you didn't like it because you don't know all the backstory about this character <laughs> and this character and, and from this comic book number 35, but the one that was done in 19. It's the same It's the same thing. Okay, so let's dig into that then. Is it really the same thing, though? What I mean is like, so what you just said was, I enjoyed this more because I knew the history, because I knew Brisson. Because I knew, because you, because you had seen those other two films. I don't know if I enjoyed this more <clears throat> because of that. I, I think that I, I was able to get over the hurdle of this film. Okay. That that I think that a casual viewer might come into that because again okay. the, the 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 starkness of the the stillness of the candle and candle the camera. The starkness of the set pieces, yeah. the 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 very muted emotion of the acting. I knew all that going in. Like that doesn't necessarily mean when I watched the first perform. That's I mean, yeah, I was with I was familiar, right? But I mean, right. I, I I hesitate to say that I needed thirty five Brisson. Films no, no, no. That's before I understood <laughs> these films and I could enjoy them. Right. <laughs> that's that, that, and that's not what I meant. I guess I meant that I see parallels in how people talk about like superhero movies that we all just kind of are like, I can just sit down and watch that. Or I, or I assume. Let me let me table it yeah. this way: If Schrader is making this three films, you know, if his next three films are just a different, um, is is significantly not is significantly the same or similar to. All right, now I've got another white guy who is tortured in this way uh -huh. rather than this way. Uh -huh. Diminishing returns a hundred percent. I don't think he can continue to tell this story over and over and over again like he has the past because he's done it well enough with the past mm -hmm, three films mm -hmm. to switch it up and mm -hmm. i don't know how many more of these he has in him 
I don't know how many more of these I have in me sure, to sure. say, like, I mean, like, go back to the well for affliction. Go and tell me a story. Yeah, right. Like, I, I'm good with the tortured man. Okay. I'm, you know, because I relate. <laughs> <laughs> no, right, right. I understand that, right. that story. But, I mean, I, he's... Look, I think he sees himself as in the latter parts of his career. So if he wants oh. to tell this story again a couple more times. I'll I'll indulge yeah. it. I mean, <laughs> as pompous as bullshit that that sounds, I'll let him do. I'll I'll, 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 I'll allow, I'll allow it. it. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say that he's that 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 if this is a trilogy that he's wrapping up in a, in, a, in a kind of an unofficial trilogy type sense, I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know if I need to see another three more of these. Um, and I think that's the real rub on the Marvel, right? Is that right. we've seen right. 25 of these now. And yes, now every single one of them requires me to have a backstory. And it's not just about me understanding Brisson. It's about me understanding 60 years of comic history to get all the Easter eggs. Or I have to, right. watch, a Mar- I have to watch something on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, It's like I have a problem with Richard Kelly's Southland Tales. Like that movie, that movie is bullshit. And I, and, and again, I, I appreciate the audacity of it all, but I think time has put Richard Kelly in his place. Speaking of filmmakers that like, like Kevin Smith, where I thought when their first film came out, I thought they were going to be the next coming. Like, I don't, I, for me to have to go and read a graphic novel and, and then also piece together right. a comic book right. series, some, some, something else on the side or go and go and dig in deeply into uh, the mythos of some website or I, I, look there's there are times where i will do that but your fucking movie better be legit before i'm going to go in and really dig yeah. into your to, into your mythology and southland tales doesn't do that i mean it just it does i mean it just kind of lies flat so i get your point um <clears throat> i don't know like yeah. i said and, and yeah and if the next movie is you know I mean, even at a window washer, I'm just gonna be like, oh, all right, okay, maybe I don't need to see this one when it first comes. I like that. I <laughs> That's just the guy who's like looking down all the time. Or just a bank teller. <laughs> just the, t- I don't know. Yeah. I don't I'm know. just trying to think of like boring jobs of people. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You, you want to, anything else you want to say about uh, Mr. Schrader? Or, or or the gardener. No, and I think we said it all. Okay. Yes, we, yes, we, we are. We're the definitive last word. <laughs> all right. Then let's move on and talk about Innisman.
Here's a real quick yeah, yeah, storyline. No, no, let's right? look, because I'm, I'm really interested in hearing the synopsis for this one. So, set in 1973 <laughs> on an uninhabited island off the Corners coast, a wildlife volunteer's daily observations of a rare, rare flower turn into a metaphysical journey that forces her, as well as the viewer, to question what is real and what is nightmare. The only feature that suggests a continuous, even though highly speeded up, flow of time is the appearance of a fruticose lichen growing on the flowers over three days and simultaneously on the protagonist's body. That's, look, this film, this shot on 16 millimeter, this is a grainy, gorgeous film that you just kind of have to give yourself over to, right? There's a lot more style than there is story. And it's more, look, I would say it's more kind of art piece than it is narrative, right? Um, And the sound is all Mm post-synced, which adds another kind of like harrowing layer that's just, again, that kind of disassociative kind of effect, I think, to the film. So, I I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) This feels like a mirror. (laughs) This feels like a movie that is about transformation, about the liminal space between time or maybe the space where boundaries start to blur, where the past bleeds into the present, which bleeds into the future, where no changes, which she writes in her journal, right, observing the flowers, where no changes is a known lie we trick ourselves into believing because everything is always changing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, speaking of movies that I'm surprised are being made, right, that, that someone – I mean, of course, it probably didn't cost a shit ton of money to film this on 16 millimeter and put it together and push it You know it was out. like carbon neutral? Or, or they tried to make it carbon neutral? That's interesting. Um, yeah, anyway, sorry. I can see that. I mean, yeah. like, he's from the area, right? I mean, it's just – Yeah, so, he, he's, a, he's a Cornish um, filmmaker. He's from Cornwall. It is – yeah. I mean, like, what you bring to this – I think this is a film that, that is begged to be seen – over and over again. I think you could even come into this and watch it piecemeal. You don't need to like, hell, you could watch this in reverse. You could watch it in 30 minute increments, just chopped up. Um, I, it's mostly without dialogue. The dialogue that you do here is pretty much inscrutable. Like you can't make half of it out. It's over like an old uh, radio coming, coming across a CB broadcast um, or being sung or, or um, you know, a sermon that's being that's kind of been given in, in, in bits and pieces. Uh, it's I, I you know while watching it, I've you know you I, and I can see this is <laughs> like looking at movies that like had I gone to see this with those three with three other people again, <laughs> they would have. I don't I don't know. Well, they walked out. I, I don't think they would have walked out, but I do think that there again. This is not a movie. For the casual viewer who wants a, a definitive A to B plotline. Right. But this is a movie that, it, like you said, if you give yourself over to it, I think you'll get something out of it every single time differently. Um, I, I, I found myself in the first 30 minutes trying to, like, piece it all together. And then at some point, you just kind of let yourself go with it. But, like, it's one of those films that, like, it also has so many, like, little things that just happen. Like, mm-hmm. <clears throat> obviously, um, 7 and 3 being set in 73, that, that 7 pops up a bunch, yeah. right? There's um, there's 7 flowers. The flowers have 7 petals. There's 7 skulls d- buried under the, the angle rock. There's 7 miners. There's 7 maids. The, her coffee is 7, seven. maids' coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's, that's, it's repeated over and over again in repetition itself is a a theme in the film right 
and then time like loops back on on itself so like um you're on an island where <coughs> um seven people you think seven people will have died on a on a on a boat trying to get out to another supply boat um you see that played out um where this woman who uh, is on this island like you like you said to think that you're doing this horticultural um research or whatever and um she's being brought supplies her only you know she has a routine that's you know she goes out and she checks the temperature of the soil and she looks at the and the flowers and the flowers start responding to her but she does the same thing over and over again she gets up from there and she drops a rock into a well and and, and if none of this makes sense yeah that's part of the point <laughs> none of it yeah. really makes sense like but you get like little hints like she finds the um she finds the boat uh, the 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 back part of the boat that that crashed, she finds it wedged in the rocks and she pulls it out. And then what you think is what I thought was her daughter when she puts it up on the mantelpiece and says oven, which was a Coventry or whatever the boat was. I can't remember now exactly the name. Um, she's like, oh, you that says oven, you know. And, and again, and there's nothing else to it. She tells her daughter self to get down off of uh, off of a, a larger um kind of an awning it's almost like a thing. greenhouse though, right because right? it's yeah. like a glass yeah. and you see bits and pieces of like <clears throat> the house that she lives in is in different states of disrepair throughout it's got different types of you know and so at a certain point you know as she starts to notice the lichen on the flower she lifts up her shirt and she's got a scar across her belly and lichen start to grow mm-hmm. on herself as well i i don't i don't know how to like I, this is either a movie you're going to fucking love or you're going to fucking hate. Mm-hmm. I cannot see any sort of like, oh, okay, I, I got it and I'm done with it, you know, kind of bullshit. Like, I, I think this is going to be a very much a, um, a uh, you know, a, a kind of divisive kind of experience for people. And, but if you're, if you allow yourself to kind of <clears throat> get caught up in the, the, the weird monotony of it all. And I think that's obviously the point, right? I mean, I think the point is, is that this, like you said, these this 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 chronicling of uh, you know no change until change happens, and then this woman who has you know always been on this island or has never been on this island, and 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 like the she, you know what I get out of this is that she's forced. This seems some sort of like she's forced to relive these moments because moments don't exist in time; they are always happening and not happening. She's always been on the island as a young self, and. So it's just a matter of like when things start to change and she burns her hand, it's like it's almost because she's afraid of the things that are changing. Mm-hmm. Right. And she wants to go back to the monotony. <laughs> right. And it's 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 so bizarre, but like so comforting at the same time. And like it's just it's it's OK. So here's the thing, too. Like why do you think this gets categorized as horror? Okay, I was gonna ask you that too because I, I guess because it's kind of a unsettling head trip. It's unsettling. It's it's it is haunting. Uh, I think you're always waiting for something else to happen, right? Or waiting for some kind of oh, what's gonna come out of this well next time she drops <laughs> the rock down there. Right. What's what's up with that big rock in the middle that's always like framed in the in in, in the center of the frame, like. Oh, wait, is this a ghost story? What's up with this preacher? I mean, there's always something there, but I don't know why it's categorized as, as horror because it's not, I mean, it's, it's, it's alluring. It, it, it drew me in because it is so kind of, you know, it's like an aqua lung song, right? It's strange and beautiful. Right? I mean, like, it's, I'm sorry. 
<laughs> um, but it but it did. It sort of pulled me in and had that kind of trance effect. But I was never, I don't know, I wasn't unsettled in a way where I was curled up on my couch like, oh my, what's going to happen? I was, I was unsettled in a way because of how sort of fascinated I was with this. And this is not even like something like Skinamarink, which is, is, is a similar tone, I guess, but not doesn't pull it off nearly as effectively. But like Skinamarink clearly wants to be scary, right? It's, it's, in, it's, it's intention is it to, wants to be scary and what it's not showing you. Right. right? And, and, the, and the scenes that I guess could be classified as horror, you know, where the, the, the scene where she gets pulled back to the house and her face gets blurry for a moment. Uh-huh. And there's a scene where, you know, where she realizes um, that herself slash daughter is going to fall <laughs> off the thing and, and slash her stomach. And so she's like screaming silently. And then maybe the the death of the of her lover um, who brings her, um, you know, who brings supplies her, this, the boatman, right? The boatman, yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess just to, I guess maybe yeah, I guess like you said, just the general unease of it all. But yeah, I wouldn't. I, I think any sort of classification of this movie does it a disservice, and also puts you into a mindset to think, oh well, I was expecting this to be scary, or expecting this to be this, um, like. The meticulous nature that he had to put together to have the color bleeds and the and the and 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 the sound being synced up and like and I, I the the craftsmanship that went into this for a yeah. second movie and the I know we say this a lot or at least I do say this a lot of like the kind of like confidence and the audacity to put this movie out as your second fucking movie good for you dude that's yeah. that's impressive yeah. So he, yeah, so he shoots everything on 16 millimeter. Um, and I think he used, he uses, at least on the, on his first film, he used a Bolex camera, which is an older like, yeah, um, yeah. Swiss made. I think he, I, I think he used the same one, but so he shoots on 16 millimeter film and then he, and if I'm wrong, someone correct me, but I believe he processes the film himself. And so a lot of the color bleeds are accidental as well. Right. Just like, like shooting that kind of sure, film stock sure, and sure. then like hand processing it, that's going to happen. And, and some of the like the scratches on the negative and stuff too. But I also, I also think he pushed it, um, you know, shot it like a different ISO and then, and then developed it a little bit different to get those color pops because the reds and stuff just explode well, off and the this screen. Been so, so cool. This would have been so easy to film digitally and then <clears throat> do a post-production on yeah. this, right? Yeah. I mean, like, because the, and, and you would have to imagine the close-up scenes that he had, and like, and I would imagine 16 millimeter probably led to the length of the shots. Um, but there are a lot of like up close, like when she's walking up the hill, and like the boot shots, right. and like just there's a lot of like, um, just really pretty still pieces. The close-ups there. of the flowers. Yeah, and, yeah, and and some of the water shots. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and running those backwards, right? I mean, so like mm-hmm. all of that, like mm-hmm. that kind of ethereal. Um, uh, just this, like I said, this kind of like catching you off guard with what you're watching. I, I was, I was really, really impressed. I mean, like I, I, I was worried when I, cause I knew what this was, right. I yeah. knew what it was and I knew we just brought Skinamarink and I was like, I don't know, man. Like, but like for 96 minutes, I am, I am there the entire time. And I'm never, I never felt bored. And again, I get it. If this is not your thing, that's it's, I, I, I don't, I would never argue someone that say <laughs> that, Oh, you should like this movie. <laughs> um, but if you can get past the, I just think it's like, I think it's so like, um, 
it's just it's interesting in a way that you don't see many films be interesting right now. And I compare it to like obviously it gets compared a lot to like 70s British folk horror. But I I look at this like um, Lars von Trier and like the lot mm. of what he's doing right mm-hmm. now, like an Antichrist and like and of course it's not as shocking or as as violent as that movie, but this kind of just like um, I don't know theater of the weird that's just like but like compelling though sure. as well. I don't know. Yeah, I, I I mean so speaking of the seventy British seventies horror stuff, he did the director Mark Jenkins did a did an interview with uh, deeper into movies, which I think is like a offshoot of vice where he talked about like 23 different movies that were sort of influences and, mm-hmm. and so no surprise that you have people like alan lomax and nicholas rogue right and, and those guys and especially like with her red red rain, coat, right, red yeah, coat yeah. you think of um don't look now and but he, so he was i mean influenced by all these things but it, but again like yeah it's it's not the wicker man no. Right? No. I mean, it's not that. And so it's... Even as ethereal as and like, and and kind of vague plotted as those movies are, this is something, it's a completely different animal. Yeah. Like, I don't think anybody yeah. would have, I, again, who, who I mean, like, it, I, I don't think this is, it's surprising to me that this gets made. I mean, it really, yeah. really, really is. I just, I don't know. Well, um, I mean, I, and I think it gets made off the back of the success that Bait had. had. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, yeah, um, Jenkins' first film was called Bait. It was done in 2019. Um, it has much more of a narrative. It's set in kind of modern day Cornwall and deals with sort of um, tradition of, of, of the fishermen, right, in that community, but also dealing with gentrification. Similar style. Right, I mean, again, but shot in black and white, but still that post-synced audio. But that was heralded as a masterpiece. And so I think that being out and getting so much attention and so much critical praise, somebody, and, I, and this was done through Neon, or distributed through Neon, Neon right? Yeah, so yeah. I'm sure Neon was like, yeah, go for it. Sure, here, right. Here, right, yes, yes. Because, I mean, I think it, it, at least probably in the UK, people are going to pay a lot of attention or, or paid a lot of attention to this. Even if, you know, we're kind of like, I don't know, troglodytes and Philistines here. So sure. <laughs> no, 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 I don't. Um, Just munching popcorn. And like, you know, Where, and where's like, Thor? <laughs> <laughs> Movie don't make sense. Want money back. <laughs> when Spider-Man show up in this one, I, I'm, I don't mean to. Um, Boobs were cool, but outside that, no like. <laughs> Boobs. <laughs> so, no, um, I um, I, I, I mean, did, I think that's kind of. Weird. I did think the clues that he throws you. Um, I think the the um, survivalist novel that was <laughs> yeah, that that, the, yeah. that she's reading, um, and this. So I, you know, contrast what I just said about not wanting to go and dig in to uh, you know to a long backstory or a lot of um, you know whatever nonsense to get a, a shitty film. This one, like going in and looking at like the, uh, what is it? What's it called? The, the, it was something of a survival, right? It was, I forget now exactly. I looked it up now. I can't remember now, but with the book that she's reading, yeah, it's basically yeah. about how, um, society is not sustainable at this point, right. at this level right. and this, this, you know, in this largesse and like, you've got to come back to a smaller portion and like, and then I don't know, this, all of those types of like little bits and pieces. And like, I just thought that that was really, really interesting. Well, there, I, th- I think this film is just so wide open to interpretation, right? I mean, again, like we, we, we talked about change and stasis and how like 
the monotony of repetition can become so overwhelming right, that you don't notice the change until like changes upon you, which, I mean, look, you want to compare that to climate change? Right. I, I mean, right. And, and how that matches up with the survival book. I mean, there you go. I mean, there's another sort of reading of it. I, I mean, I think well, the miners too. And like, I mean, like, and you clearly think that something happened and because they're all like when they come out on the, on the, on the, um, mountain, they're all wearing dynamite. Right. You look at the oppressive nature of religion as they're all like stomping right. back and forth. Right. The seven mages stomping back and forth as she's lying down on the ground. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, there's, like you said, whatever you take away from this movie is probably right. Yeah. And there's so much to take away from it. Yeah. And like the destruction of sort of like traditional jobs, traditional values. And I think Cornwall is an interesting place to have this stuff set in. Anyway, I'm, I was really curious, like watching this, like, okay, if I knew more about the culture of Cornwall, right? Because the Cornish is its own language, mm -hmm. right? So very much like, you know, Welsh, right? I mean, there, it has its own language, but if I knew more of the culture and sort of legends of Cornwall, would this film open up another reading, right? Another kind of interpretation. Um, what would, there was a, what was his name? Adam Scoville writing for BBC culture said the film was a perfect anti-romantic expression of Cornish eeriness. And I'm like, not knowing anything about like Cornwall. <laughs> I'm like, right. that sounds really interesting. And how someone familiar with this place would, would look at this film too. Um, I mean, I know there's a lot of legends with like giants and ghosts and other monsters that, that live in Cornwall. And, and it's also connected to the Arthurian legend. So, there's all this stuff that's right there, too. Also, this idea, kind of going back to, I think, the climate change, too. There's this idea of man's anxiety or attempt to control and organize nature. This connects with mm -hmm. Master Gardener as well. And how you just can't. Because nature, <laughs> nature does not fucking care, <laughs> right? Nature is beautiful and haunting and will fuck you up. <laughs> I think that's part of this film as well, right? This, this attention to the land, this attention to documenting the land and how you just can't. Right. I, I also think that this is a film where, go back to Brisson. Brisson was a, was a filmmaker who cared more about the feeling than the meaning. Right. right. And I think this is another film like that too, where, you know, the vibe is much more important than the oh, kind of- Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, one thing going back to Master Gardener real quick, the one point I wanted to bring up, which I thought was pretty funny, is that um, Edgerton at one point, like as he's uh, um, kind of getting out of the out of his out of his uh, handler phase, he's like uh, journaling was good up until a point and now, and now I kind of lost the, the thread of it I, 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 forget, I, I was just like oh that's fucking brilliant this like, journal used to serve me but this is my last like right. now it's become like oppressive but I'm like that's yeah that was funny I do think that maybe that's a little bit of Schrader with on, on, you kind of like nodding to us saying look this is this is what you got I mean this is yeah. my last person like I mean like true yeah. like my last homage to person is like we're gonna put away <laughs> all of this because I'm, I'm kind of running out of it as well well and I think I mean, I, you know, I think we talked about this before, too, when, when this film was first shown, and I think it was Venice, maybe it was Berlin, I'm not sure. It opens up with him writing in the journal, and people in the audience laughed. Laughed, right. <clears throat> and it's like, I, I didn't think it was funny. I mean, I guess I expected it, but I also thought that this character, where it made perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Because I don't, he is keeping track of like growth in you know, seasons and seeds and what you're planting and, and what you're watering and right, yeah. and and he's he's someone who is kind of really switching from a different lifestyle and trying to be something else. 
And I think this is a kind of exercise, a kind of cathartic exercise. And, and you see his desk in his room and everything is, everything has its own place. This makes sense. I, it didn't really make sense to me in the card counter. Uh, I mean, I guess you you could make a similar argument, but it just didn't seem to fit. The The controlled nature of card counting seems like that would cover your basis for journaling, right? I mean, clearly <laughs> right, these, right. Are, these are, it's symbolic <clears throat> of men who have chaos in their lives sure. trying to come back to find some. I, I The card counter to me is a little, it, it's interesting because the way that he handled his entire hotel room, right? Like he wrapped everything in sheets to be, you know, this, this, this idea of cleanliness and like, um, you know, kind of antiseptic, just kind of lifestyle of like nothing else exists except mm -hmm. for what I do. I can, I can kind of, but I agree with you that, yeah, the journalistic pieces of it, and especially him, like keeping a record of him, keeping a record of his thoughts when he would have been one so reviled and like publicly reviled, right? Like mm -hmm. Hawk and Edgerton, would have been as well, but not quite as, I don't know, it wouldn't have been like as, 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 as scandalous. You would have captured the, the you know, the, the white supremacist, whatever, you know, cell, and then you would have never heard about that guy ever again because he would have turned state's evidence and then he would have just disappeared, right? right? I mean, you would right. have just heard of everyone else. Yeah. 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 <laughs> as, as we go down the rabbit hole of... <laughs> of men who journal <laughs> but I mean I, yeah, I mean I think it's been an in interesting device in in Schrader's career and I think you know sometimes it works better than it does others right, right? like I still don't think it fucking works in Taxi Driver I, and I know that I no. mean you know I mean I, that's not to to pick nits with that film because it's a brilliant film but I'm just like this this guy's not he has no introspection. He's not right. You'd almost it, argue that he doesn't even know how to write. I mean, I no, mean to right. that extent. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, yeah, yeah. It's, Travis Bickle is not an intellectual. He no. and he desires to be, but but even journal. I mean, journalistically, he would have he would have tired of it. There's no way he would have kept it up. Right. 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 I mean, right. And, and so like maybe you. I can see it from perspective of like cataloging your fares but even then like he has, has no he has no passion behind the the driving yeah. of the taxi right i mean right. like and like his life until he starts to like turn is full of laziness and apathy and television watching and pornography right i mean that's that that's what he fills his days with and he has no he has no sense of culture or or, or correction he sees everything so so stark and black and white that he thinks he's right, right, which is right. The, which is the real danger of that of, of of him, right? I mean, that's why he's so he's so antithetical to like the the characters that he's that he's doing now. I mean, I can never decide if it works in Light Sleeper or not. Yeah, I mean, there's sometimes I think it does, and other times I think it doesn't. You know what? I'm tired of it. I'm tired of Schrader being a pawn to big fucking empty big notes. journaling, big, big journal, <laughs> big journal. <laughs> Look, I, look like, straight, are we get it. Needs paying your fucking bills, man. But it ain't gonna happen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I found us out. No, no one uses like an old school like marble composition notebook either. <laughs> All right. What else do you want to say about anything else that you want to to say about Ennisman? Uh, no, I say okay. give it a, give it a shot. Yeah. I mean, like I would I would I, look. You'll know pretty soon, pretty quickly whether you're into it or not. 
I, it's not something like I, if you don't like it in the first 20, I, well, I would say if you give it 30 minutes <laughs> and then because at 30 minute point, it does start to like dive into mm-hmm. a little bit more of like, OK, now we've seen the repetition and we see starts to see like because 30 minutes is right where she starts to find the, the back of this of the of the ship. Mm-hmm. And then you're given more. Right. You're never given everything fully. But, you know, the flowers start to you know, the things start to start moving a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, it's one of those films where just give yourself over to it. It's, it's, I don't know. You can make it a puzzle, but it's, it's best you don't just don't just, yeah. (laughs) But I think, I don't know. That's the joy of a movie like this. And this is okay. (laughs) On one hand, everything is deconstruction, right? We're always sort of using this thing as a, as a tool to get to some other kind of meaning. But on the other hand, we can look back at someone like Susan Sontag, who was like, don't dig around in this stuff too much, right? Look at how it's made. Pay attention to the beauty of it and just do that, right? Or at least just try to do that. And so, you know, I don't know, have it both ways. <laughs> that's that's what I say. <laughs> what? If there's any moral of this podcast, it's have, have both it both ways. ways. All, right, all right. Anything else you want to talk about, Wiseman? No, are we going to do a recommended yeah. if you like? All right. Yeah. Let's, uh, why don't you kick those off? Okay. Because so, mine, are, mine are like kind of all over the place in this case. but uh, Sore mine, and this is kind of fun. If you like The Hidden Fortress, right? <laughs> here's my recommendation. The 2001 film version of Waiting for Godot. Okay. The, the Irish Irish film. So, yeah, I mean, you see like these two kind of characters who are on one hand buffoons and who constantly insult each other, but are also lifelong friends, lifelong companions. I'm with you. Yeah. All right. I like that. Yeah. Uh, I went with In Bruges. Okay. I mean, that's not really a, a but I like the, the, the dynamic, the dynamic, like, if I could say that <laughs> word, I would like it even more. The, the dynamic of uh, Farrell and, and, and what's his face. And, and so it's just that kind of, I don't know, it, it really doesn't match. But I was like, Gleason, I don't want to, Brendan Gleeson. Yeah. I don't want to like, look, go out and watch all the Kurosawa's. I mean, like, right, yeah, the, right. The, he's a master for a reason. Right. And, and you're not going to find one that you're, I mean, like, it yeah. turned off. In fact, I would almost say, like, the Hidden Fortress. Takes a minute to get in, get in, get going. Like it's a little long on the on the beginning side because when you're dealing with two rogue characters, which I think the comedy plays better in Fifty Eight than it does in Two Thousand Twenty Three. True. Yeah. yeah. Um, like there's there's it's compelling, <clears throat> but it takes a minute to get to Princess Yuki, and and, yeah. and 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 so I found myself watching it this time with a crowd like. And I always do this with movies, especially with the ones that we're presenting. Is like I'm always like, <laughs> until I can. Are they like, going to like it? Like, here's let's get this. Come on, guys, let's get the story going. Let's get Are they going to like this movie? <laughs> Are they going to like me? <laughs> right, which is the fucking because <laughs> if they don't like this movie, they don't like me. Look, Jason, gonna, there's a corner Jason. over here. I'm just going to ball up and cry. <laughs> there, there are plenty of movies that you like that I don't like, and I still like you. I appreciate that. I, I really do. But I think we're both responding to the sort of um, the duo, the duo yeah, in this right. film, and, yeah, and, and and how those how that duo works. Okay, um, for Master Gardener, I recommended 2014's The Drop, starring Tom Hardy, Numi Rapace, and James Gandolfini. Oh, I have seen that. Yes, yeah, I did like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Tom Hardy is a similar type character, and what I mean is sort of like an isolated man who who ends up connecting with this woman who, in a way kind of leads to his growth, redemption, whatever you you like. I don't know. I, I, I like that film. Written by Dennis Lehane. Um, 
Directed by Michael Roscombe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mine was 2015's The Guest, written and directed by Joel Edgerton. It's so that mm-hmm. that is a really good film. Yeah. Um Jason Bateman plays the biggest dickhead in the world. It's so great. <laughs> it's so great. I was wondering if that was gonna come up. Yeah. Yeah, he's and it's really I always forget that he wrote and directed it until I rem, until I go back and look at it again. But I did it's it's yeah, it's so so good. Oh, it's so much re- fun. He it, Edgerton has done he's good. Yeah. I think he's a really underrated actor and director, in my opinion. <laughs> he kind of like I agree with you. I, I think he falls into that generic like we have a, a set of generic white dudes right now that just kind of like all like yeah. not, not Oscar Isaac, but um but so it's Edgerton and who the heck Tom Hardy. Sure. Tom Hardy kind of looks the same. Um, Sam, similar haircut. Sam Worthington to a much, much lesser degree. Sure. Uh, but there's these guys that kind of like just fall into this, like, okay, who am I looking at again? Like, who? <laughs> like, it's the Dilma Moroni. I was going to say, is, is that Dylan McDermott or is it Dermot Moroni? <laughs> uh, I do think all of these guys, well. Except for Sam Worthington. Yeah, don't, don't put okay. him in there. I think, I think Hardy and Edgerton really do transform into their roles. Uh, and I'm thinking of, agreed, of agreed. like, you know, Edgerton in this, Edgerton in. Um, yeah, um, Edgerton. Wait, wasn't it the gift? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, yeah. it was the, the gift. I'm the sorry. Gift. The guest is somebody. Something else. Anyway, like guest, we we knew what we were. <laughs> again, you can't. An hour and fifty five minutes of the podcast. I'm gonna. Hey, sundown. but you were worried if we were gonna get to two hours. That's now. true. We've done we've done really well today. <laughs> <laughs> we. I've been trying to pick up Jason's completely right, right. just kind of like why am I here this is why it's like god man Brock um, is all hunched over because he's been carrying my ass <laughs> um, anyways I, I mean I think Edgerton really really transforms into these different kind of roles that he takes on um, okay so for Ennisman my recommendation 1943 short film Meshes of the Afternoon I have not seen oh, that oh it's really uh, directed by Maya Darren and I, I guess her husband Alexander Hackenschmeid gets directorial credit, but I, you know, I think she died fairly young, fairly soon after this. Um, but this is very much a woman in a dream state, kind of seeing herself and seeing another um, a robed figure with a mirrored face, and there's this knife, and there's a sense of danger, but then like no danger really happens, or it's averted, but there's like repetition. She sees herself kind of going, you know, in this loop. So um, it's it's an really fucking trippy and and I'm not going to do it justice because I don't know how to describe it right but there are those parallels of sort of dream state repetition have you ever seen that that short film it's I'll have to look it up and I'm not going to find the name of it but it's about this woman who realizes that she's in a commercial for like Pizza Hut or something no it's no it's Red Lobster she realizes that she's in a Red Lobster commercial and she has to start repeating her so like she has these lines that she has to say and then as soon as the red lobster commercials over she's back into it and it's like this whole peril it's this parable for addiction but what happens is is that if she doesn't say her lines the all the other characters start freaking out and so she she has to like kill the waiter to in order to break this cycle i'll find it for you oh my god yeah, that it, sounds it's, amazing it's it's really that really sounds cool. incredible <laughs> Um, Meshes of the Afternoon is on uh, the Criterion okay. channel, so you can um, 
You and listeners can find it there. <laughs> uh, and my last one, I was going to do Don't Look Now, just mm-hmm. because of the red mm-hmm. jacket, but it seemed a little too on this. I'm going to do I, that, really kind of a twofer, but uh, In the Earth or an, oh, yeah, uh, in a yeah, Field yeah. in England with uh, by Ben Weaver. Yeah, yeah. So he was another director that I thought of, like, watching this. Right. So, yeah. so yeah, I mean, which is, again, I still can't get over that Ben Wheatley is directing The Meg 2 I, it must be some sort of tax issue or like he owes state like Statham has naked pictures. Like I don't understand. We all know Statham has naked pictures, at least of himself. Right. <laughs> Why wouldn't he? I would if I was I, Statham. I mean I I do. <laughs> I'm stuck. <laughs> Uh, but Ben Wheatley has that kind of look. I mean, there's nothing really like Ennis Minutes from a perspective of like a long form that that uh, that I can really think of. I mean, aside from Skinner Marine, which I don't want to recommend. Um, but this kind of, uh, like I said before, ethereal, like, uh, just kind of mind trip. Mm-hmm. Um, but Wheatley kind of comes closest as far as like these, uh, classified as horror, non-horror films that are, that are, you know, kind of brainy and trippy and, and, but if you haven't seen Nicholas Rogue's, uh, don't look now, go see oh, yeah. that as well. It's yeah. a beautiful, um, movie with Sutherland and Christie and, uh, it's a classic. So, no, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, Julie Christie's so no. uh, that that yeah that I mean that whole movie is amazing but like you know obviously that the scene between them is their uh, you know dressing and undressing at the same time and it's yeah it's that Rogue was um, yeah Rogue's walkabout ex- coming to Criterion yep. um, uh, this next month I think so September is it September yeah. that they said they just announced the September releases interesting um, um, but but I mean like I mean Rogue in general is is a trippy filmmaker I mean. The witches walk about yeah. performance. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of these are are really interesting, weird. Um, what do you think films? about La Bamba hitting the Criterion releases? Hey, good for Richie Valens, uh, Isai Morales, and good, good for Isai Morales, who was also in Master Gardener, um, and good for the guy who played Richie Valens, <laughs> Lou Diamond Phillips. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, it's a movie that I watched a lot when it came out. When I was a kid, yeah. Because I mean, it was it was one of those ones I could just go to the dollar theater, and it came up a lot. And like, it was I don't know. It just doesn't. Aside from it being a biopic, which it also is, it really that in in uh, insightful, or is it really peeling back any onions from La Bamba, from like Valens's life? I mean, he the worst thing that happened is he's got. A well, drug he, addict brother, and he, and he won died. the coin toss. <laughs> right, he the <laughs> but he faced racism because of his white girlfriend, and mm-hmm. he um, grew up poor. And he had a I I don't know. It's I, I don't want to diminish it, but I just don't understand why. Like look, I understand why certain movies get Criterion releases just because they're going to bring money into Criterion, sure. right? Sure. So I mean, like, like Wally, right, or Armageddon, or uh, RoboCop, or and yeah. these movies that. And you, you can make an argument for certain ones, but I mean, the reason that Armageddon had got a Criterion DVD release and a, I, it was because Criterion was hurting and they needed somebody, yeah. they needed money to come in. So that's why The Rock gets one and things like that. Um, you know, not to m- diminish any Bay lovers out there or whatever, but I don't know. <laughs> Embrace the Bayham. Like who is, of all of the movies that we're talking about, like there's not a, were we clamoring for La Bamba and an in-depth de- in dive of La Bamba? I don't know who directed La Bamba. And I don't know why I'm saying La Bamba so much. Otherwise, the <laughs> song does. Um, but is but is but is is their career one that we're going to start digging into? I can't imagine that being the case because I don't know who the fuck it is. Right. And are we going to have like a Lou Diamond Phillips Renaissance? 
Right. Um, I don't. I don't know. Fine. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, I mean, right. If you're if you're if you want me to sign up for an Eastside Morales uh, surge, I'm I'm all for it. But I don't know. It just it was a really really bizarre entry to me. Yeah. I mean, no, no, me too. Because I don't remember the last time I really even thought like about who's, yeah, like Mabamba. So Louis Valdez, Luis Valdez is the director. Um, he also directed the TV movie The Cisco Kid. I, I mean. Mm. Well, I can't wait for the Criterion release of that. So, it, yeah, nothing else really, right? So, like, who's who's calling for La Bamba? <clears throat> I mean, and like, of, of of musical biopics, like, I I would just think you'd go back further, right? You could do the Buddy Holly story, and there's other like I don't know, Carpenter's Elvis. Like, there's just movies that are more interesting to me than yeah than La Bamba. Yeah, and it's weird. I don't know. I have no answers for you there. Can we call Cri- Mr. Criterion? Yeah, I, I think I think Mr. Criterion is <laughs> always one to take our phone calls. Uh, I, you know, I think he I think he cares about what we have to say. I think he, and not just us, even though like we do, is, is as far as where we rank on the hierarchy of people he cares about, we're up there pretty high. Right, but I think sure. he cares about all prospective viewers um, and cinema lovers. And in general, I believe that there's a 1-800 number that goes like directly. I'm to pretty sure it's 1-800 Criterion. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah maybe too many letters, but. 1-800 Mr. Criterion. <laughs> it's his own special switchboard. <laughs> right. Um, uh, he's on, he's on Twitter, right? Is he doing TikToks? Oh. Right, we crossed Jason, two hours. It's Jason, fine. tell the people, tell the people yes. what we're going to get into next so time. Next time, we're going back to D Double G, and we're going to his stoner land. Um, we're going to be watching The Sitter. We're going to be watching Pineapple Express, and we're going to be watching Your Highness. Not necessarily in that order, but we'll be watching those. We'll be talking about them, uh, and we'll be talking about one of the most inexplicable movie director careers that I can think of. Really, in, in in recent history, it's but, really strange. But we'll it's bounce really back strange. next time. Um, but again, this is an interesting exercise, and that is why we are here. <laughs> that's why we were here. That's why you called us to do this, right? This is, uh, and so we're doing it for you. No, one hundred percent, we are doing it for you, listener. <laughs> the one listener out there. <laughs> You know, it's funny because we didn't watch all of Schrader. We'll end up watching all of David Gordon Green's films. We did not watch all of Schrader's films. I know. I know. And, and I, I do want to make clear to people who are listening that this was Jason's idea. <laughs> Look, man, on paper it sounded... No, sounded, no. Oh. I think it is an interesting exercise. Um, Seriously. Go ahead. When please. we do Sarah Polly, did you see what Sarah Polly just got signed up for? No. The live action remake of Bambi. Oh, fuck me. So why? Does, that make it, why? does that make it more interesting to you? Because she's going to be helming it. Or... No, no, <laughs> no. I I hate these live action things. I there's no reason to do Bambi, right? It's going to be animated. You're what? not going to actually. You're not going to. You're right. not going to hire a deer. Um, although look you... and look, there might be deer out there who need work. <laughs> I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. I hope they bring in a special deer rider as well. What would make that more interesting to you? What what could possibly get no, you in this, into this? Nothing. Seats? Like if nothing. people were dressed up as deer. <laughs> like if you hired like Dolmet Maroney. <laughs> and Dylan McDermott. And Dylan McDermott. Dylan McDermott is Thumper. Yes, yes. And Dylan Maroney is Bambi. Flower. And Flower, okay, yeah. And we get Margot Robbie. To, no, Amy Schumer to be Bambi. Like, oh, like, Bambi's mom. 
Amy Schumer's Bambi's mom, right? <laughs> and we'll get Zendaya to be Bambi. That seems right. That yeah. seems no. I, look, I mean, in all seriousness, I do not. I do not care about these live action remakes. I don't care. I am not. And again, I'm not even a fan of of animation, right? <laughs> and and that's not to disparage anime. If you like adult animation, or even if you like regular animation, I mean, look, I like cartoons. I like Bugs Bunny. I mean the problematic sort of like racist tropes and Tom and Jerry and stuff notwithstanding. But, you know, I like this stuff, right? But, right. but, but I'm not going to spend 90 minutes to two hours, you know, invest well, in this. But that, I just, I just don't and, care and about that's this live the action thing, is that It's going to be drug out to a two hour long. And it's going to look like shit probably. It's going to look like shit. The Little Mermaid looked fucking terrible. Look, and, and why, and I get, I get money, okay? I get it. But why are these directors doing these fucking movies? Right, like, why is she doing a live-action remake of Bambi? Why? What are you going to bring to the story? Why? Right. And why did Chloe Zhao do the, the Eternals? Eternals? And why? Why? Uh, I don't know. I, I just, I just don't get it. Look, I think we have just talked about a couple movies today and a couple filmmakers who are showing you that you can do things on different budgets and and maintain. No, now I just sound like fucking self-righteous, but you can maintain a kind of like artistic principle and artistic sensibility without having to do these things where you're controlled by the studio. Not only that is, again, given on a time, a a finite timeline and, you know, of what you can and can't accomplish. Does, does Bambi open up? (laughs) I just, I just picture the fucking poster from the director of women talking comes Bambi. Bambi. Starring Dolman Maroney as <laughs> Flower, <laughs> Dylan McDermott as Thumper. Thumper. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> and like, and their pictures are actually reversed. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, which one? And someone's like, "No, no, that's, that's isn't that's, it? Isn't that?" <laughs> and they're not. That's Dylan sure. McDermott, right? No, 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 I'm, t- oh, wait. <laughs> but, but yeah, a timeline of you only have so much to do in this world. Is this what you want to do? Um, and I guess, you know, people need summer homes. I, I mean, and, and whatever. I don't, it's just, it's, yeah, it's all, it, it, it's, it's weird and disappointing all at the same time. But, but again, I don't begrudge uh, Bombach or Gerwig to do Bam, uh, Barbie either, though I guess that's, 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 diff- that's, okay. So I think, I think that's a different kind of conversation and I hope that we, take some time to talk about Barbie after we've seen it. But I, I mean, I do think that that is an opportunity to do something different with that. And by all accounts, the production companies that got involved made sure that Bombach and Gerwig had some freedom to do some, I mean, you heard about, you know, Amy Schumer dropped out because right. it wasn't feminist and, or it wasn't, there was no feminist angle on this film. By all accounts, now there is. Um, of course, this is not having seen it yet, but <laughs> right. I mean, I can't imagine you know credit cover is going to be like, yes, Barbie is just a housewife. <laughs> right. So, right. Um, but but so I think there's an opportunity to do something different there. I don't know what your opportunity is with the live action Bambi when you've got Disney, who's going to be like, yeah, you, you can't do that. Right. Right. You can't. N- no. You know, Bambi is clearly a white deer. I know. Right. She's <laughs> not a. Maybe, maybe, yeah. <laughs> this is not about DEI, okay, Sarah Pauly? Right. Um, <laughs> I, I just, so, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I, I think we've just talked about there's room to make these kind of films that aren't, you know, big, kind of big tent, 
you know, IP. So. Well, there you go. Have so, some fucking integrity, people. I know you guys are waiting with bated breath for your highness. We'll we'll get to it very very soon. And I and uh, I know I know Brock is waiting. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, we'll record in a couple of weeks. Brock will watch this exactly uh, like <laughs> thirteen and a half days before <laughs> from now. He's <laughs> like, "Fuck!" I find, oh, like I'm up, I'm up against it's like all right, it's two o'clock. Well, but you know, I mean, I have to go, so I'm I'm going to visit family. Um, you know, starting in a couple of days, and I'll, I'll be there for a little longer than I usually go visit family. So there will be plenty of time for me to go. You know what? I have to, I have to go watch Guys, this movie. Sorry, like why? So I have a podcast. Have I told you about my podcast? <laughs> you know, lots of people told me I'm naturally funny. I should have a podcast. <laughs> so I'll, I'll have excuses to go watch these. Stupid fucking uh, and I, I, I'd invite you to watch it with me, but I've got to I've got to lock in and, and yeah, really I've yeah. got to find no, an artistic angle. I really angle look. I have to, <laughs> I have to have, <laughs> I have to find an artistic angle, an existential angle, a phenomenological angle, and I have to take notes. <laughs> <laughs> See, Jonah Hill is a babysitter to these kids who don't want to be babysat. I don't know if you so, like. So do, do, do you get the metaphor do you there? Get it? Do you get do the you metaphor get there, it? mom? <laughs> <laughs> look, you're not going to get it, okay? You just look, don't. Look, you don't look, understand. Look, look, it's after your time. Right. All right. All right. You're too old. <laughs> There's nothing ageist about this podcast. <laughs> All right. Okay. Let's wrap it up. All right. Um, so that'll be next time. And um, I don't know. Until then, thank you all for listening. And uh, you know what to do. Keep screaming. You have been listening to Why Does the Wilhelm Scream with your hosts, Brock and Jason. If you liked today's episode, do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe in whatever application you use to consume podcasts these days. You can reach us by visiting whydoesthewilhelmscream.com. If you are in the DFW area, we would love to see you at a Fort Worth Film Club event. You can learn more about those and find a full schedule at fortworthfilmclub.com. And you can learn about my foundation and how we are trying to foster the next generation of film lovers at realhousefoundation.org. That's R-E-E-L housefoundation.org. Till next time.